This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy Wednesday. Happy day after FBI decision day. Yeah, that was interesting. A day that will live in infamy. The director of the FBI goes on and on for, what, 10, 15 minutes? Yeah, 15 minutes. Basically saying everything that was done wrong, but we're not going to pull charges. Yeah. We're not going to press charges. He, he like, pulled no punches. He was pounding... <laughs> And then, but there won't be any charges against her because a, any reasonable prosecutor would not prosecute this. Did you hear the comparisons with Petraeus? No. The, the U.S. general who gave a bunch of yeah, uh, he, secrets to his woman writing, it was a woman writing a book, but right. it was also his girlfriend. Girlfriend and gave confidential documents. Now, he printed them out, put them in a binder, and gave them to her. Yeah. That's not what Hillary Clinton did. No. She sent unsecured emails back and forth with other people in the government. 52 lines of emails, 100 plus yeah. top secret or whatever. And then – but she didn't give them to a lover. Yeah. So that was the line that they said was the, the difference was that she didn't purposefully give them to another yeah. person that is you know not involved in all this. Hillary Clinton sent emails through the course of the business of her office. Right. But, you know, did it incorrectly and unsecurely with top secret information. And that may not even be the case. There was a case a year ago where a man that nine years earlier, had he, he's now been sentenced to two years probation. But he was charged with felony, you know, criminal intent to deceive right. by, by taking these documents. Basically did what she did. And, and they – they said – because the whole question is did she, did, they didn't, she didn't show an intent to deceive or she didn't show mm-hmm. an intent to do it. But this other guy didn't have an intent either. He just did it. And it proves the case that you don't always have to have this willful intent. Sometimes just have a disregard with so many volumes of emails is problematic. But hmm. what do you do? What do you do? Well, let's hear what the FBI um, uh, Director Comey – says although we did not find clear evidence that secretary clinton or her colleagues intended to violate laws governing the handling of classified information there is evidence that they were extremely careless in their handling of very sensitive highly classified information there is evidence that it was mishandled she didn't do a good job on that but not intent i guess so we can't prosecute and anyone with a brain wouldn't what he said. That seemed a little extreme. Yeah. But um, we'll, we'll get to all of that and dissect that for you. Plus, in, uh, a little bit later, we're going to be talking to two professors who have been studying the debt crisis for college students and their student loans and the need to pay back their student loans, but their inability to do it. About 42% of student loans, aren't, they're either not being paid or the people are in default. 42%. That's ah, not a problem. We'll talk to the experts about that, find out what can be done about student loans 
And uh, we'll get to that, plus uh, more news and headlines as well. But let's first get to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas, find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Caitlin, what's up? Good morning, Matt. So President Obama and Hillary Clinton campaigned together yesterday in North Carolina, eight years after the pair were rival Democratic candidates for the presidential nomination. Obama said Clinton was a great Secretary of State and extolled her as a candidate who will not back down no matter how fierce the opposition. Donald Trump wasted no time in concluding that the FBI's recommendation in the Hillary Clinton email case was just further evidence that, quote, the system is rigged. Minutes after FBI Director James Comey wrapped up his announcement um, yesterday that the Bureau would not recommend criminal charges be pressed against Clinton for her use of a private email server during her tenure as a Secretary of State. Protests have broken out in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, after footage surfaced of two white police officers pinning down a black man and fatally shooting him outside a convenience store on Tuesday. The circulating cell phone video shot by a bystander shows Alton Sterling, 37, being tackled to the ground and then held down as one of the officers appears to hold a gun above Sterling's chest. An autopsy revealed that Sterling died of multiple gunshot wounds to the chest and the back. A man who left about 187000 cash in a Boston taxi has been reunited with his money thanks to an honest cabbie, police say. Raymond Buzzy McCosland, a taxi driver, picked up a fare. At one point, the man got out of the cab to meet a friend, intending to return and leaving a bag behind. McCosland says the 72-year-old driver waited about 30 minutes, but the man did not return, so he drove to the man's hotel to look for him. Unable to find the man, McCausland looked in the bag for identification. There he found three bundles of $50 and $100 bills. He immediately drove to the police headquarters to turn in the cash. The cabbie tells the New York Daily News that while he has never been a crook and he would never have kept the money, he was a little bit disappointed and not thrilled that the owner of the money only gave him a reward of just $100. So he was a little bit upset about that amount, Matt, but he did return the money. Well, what a guy. What a guy. (laughs) Always return the money. Hey, thanks, Caitlin. Um, Boy, FBI Director Comey came out. And honestly, they say for somebody in his position, he's got the highest, uh, what would you call it? Just reputation, the strongest reputation for just clean, honest work. He's He's not politically driven. He's not. Unless it's an iPhone iPhone? Oh, yeah. Well, no, that was... He's just an Android lover. So he's trying to push Apple down. That's all that was about. Right, right. But uh, interestingly, too, um, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton just happened to be on the trail the same day. Yeah. Just hanging out together. Did you see any of that? No. I was too busy chasing I really don't Director like, Comey. I, I don't like political rallies. I don't like... Uh, since when? I just Since always. They just seem really... Well, as they are, fabricated and political, and structured and political. <laughs> and just you have some top 40 pop hit just booming through the stadium. And then out comes Hillary Clinton. It just doesn't seem to match. Yeah, it's weird. It's, it's not her music. It's not her song. But they're using it for every single campaign event. It's the same song. Yeah. And then they come out and let you, her and the, the president walk around on the stage kind of waving to hey everybody everybody and nobody at the same time, if that makes any yeah. sense. Yeah. And they just sort of awkwardly wait until the song plays out so she can start talking. <laughs> that is – and they wave. You got to wave. Lots of waving. So much waving. And you wonder, are people waving back? Oh, yeah. And, but then everyone stops and puts up their phones. Okay, yeah. To take uh, – you, you want video of it all. Right. So – when he comes out, President Barack Obama's in a weird place because this is his past executive over the State Department. Mm-hmm. 
who the FBI, who's also one of his employees, came out and just said she's what were his exact words? They were they were like perfect. Um extremely careless. Extremely careless. And by the way, so this is this is, you know, this is top secret information. And he's now got to say what? What do you say? Well, let's find out. Because it's You can't it, say extremely careless. Yeah. That'd be not you, good. You can't say that. There has never been any man or woman more qualified for this office than Hillary Clinton. Ever. And that's the truth. That's the truth. And and more qualified. No one. More qualified. Everyone has an opinion. Right. But, you know, horrible with intelligence. <laughs> Apparently. Probably the worst ever. With intelligence? Yeah, at managing appropriately yeah, intelligence. Probably. So yeah. most qualified ever of any man, woman, or child. Well, if the threshold is you're running for office and being investigated by the FBI, yeah, she, she takes yeah. the cake there. Yeah. And it's it's not even to mention um, all the F, the FOIA uh, investigations where the now the judge is really upset with the State Department because they're releasing materials so slowly that all of these court cases are getting backed up. Mm-hmm. And all of the court cases have to do with freedom of information requests made about Hillary Clinton's work in specific targeted areas now. So the neat thing about this. If you were tired of President Clinton's continuous investigations done on him during his presidency, it's not going to stop. It's going to continue because I think we're going to have a lot of them. In fact, Paul Ryan even says, "I think we ought to probably make sure that the intel chief blocks Hillary from getting any classified briefings." You know, when I was Mitt Romney's running mate, I got classified briefings every week by the CIA, by National Intelligence, very sensitive information which you get as a candidate once the convention occurs. Mm. Comey said, short of prosecution, some kind of administration action should occur, um, bringing consequences. I think the, the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, should block her access to classified information, given how recklessly she handled this. Mm. So that's, you know, you may have a president that... <laughs> Isn't informed because she's too reckless with the information. The idea of the briefings is so that if you do step into the office as you're president, up you're up to speed on day one. But I guess what she would do is once she is president, she'd be able to just show everybody she's up to speed because she'll probably have friends emailing her the yeah. intelligence. <laughs> That's the other side of it. She would have contacts to yeah. be able to keep herself updated because they don't give them the entirety no. of the national security picture. They give them to, up to a point. Like yeah. there's active operations they don't know about. Well, and things they of that don't nature. email them. I think they actually sit down in a room it's with the documents Snapchat. and then they have a conversation. And at the end of the conversation, they collect all the documents and put them in the burn bag and then they burn the documents. So, right. but what, what, what do the, you do? I mean, it's, it's actually a really good point. If she's reckless, according to the FBI director, then should she have any of this? Her campaign is really trying to be on Snapchat. Yeah. They're really trying to have a presence there, trying to reach out to the younger people. 
they could do these briefings on Snapchat. They disappear. They self-destruct messages on Snapchat. There's no evidence they exist. She would love Snapchat. I'm surprised she didn't invest in it. Um, so that that's a big deal. And and Donald Trump is like obviously thinking this is a scam job, right? This is this is just you know stealing an election. Basically, Hillary never has to pay for anything. He says it's proof that the system is rigged. It's totally it it is rigged because any other person would have been hung by now. Uh, but but he also says that. The Republicans aren't maybe the biggest losers in this whole debacle. Uh, He actually thinks Bernie Sanders may have taken a hit. But think of Bernie Sanders. Who's the most angry about this? I think the one with the most to lose is Bernie Sanders. Because honestly, he was waiting for the FBI primary. And guess what? He just lost today the FBI primary. He lost the FBI primary. Bernie, my poor Bernie... Oh, Bernie, I feel so badly for Bernie. But you know what? A lot of Bernie Sanders supporters are going to be voting for Trump because Bernie Sanders was right. Hmm. Well, uh, maybe. I, I don't see that happening. Well, they might if he didn't act like that. I don't see how people who are further liberal than a Hillary Clinton supporter would be. Yeah. Well, Turning around and voting for Trump. Well, except they might just hate Hillary. They might just go to the green yeah. or the libertarian. Or, yeah, you know. but let's just say you got to divide them. A quarter go with Hill. Or, or they tend to trend younger, and the trend for younger people is just not to vote. Just not anymore. vote. Just move on. Or unless you want drink. a real anti-Clinton vote, then you go to Trump. I just don't see that. <laughs> Seems like too much of a stretch to go from oh, one no. end of the spectrum to the other just for, you know, you hate a person. So, and I don't get why people are so down on politics. Really? Yeah. I think it's pretty self evident. I mean, you've got, think about it. You got the Don. Yeah. Who now, by the way, is, uh, is even very much pro Saddam's tactics. Saddam Hussein was a bad guy, right? He was a bad guy, really bad guy. But you know what he did well? He killed terrorists. He did that so good. They didn't read him the rights. They didn't talk. They were a terrorist. It was over. Today, Iraq is Harvard for terrorism. You want to be a terrorist, you go to Iraq. It's like Harvard. It's Harvard. Yeah, it's the Ivy League of terrorism. Oh, I bet Harvard loved that. (laughs) They're like, oh, good. We'll put that in our brochure for the fall. You know, so let me get this straight. So I guess he's saying... We want to be more like Saddam. With how he dealt with terrorism, yes. Just Which is whatever, don't read people their rights, don't right. do any of those things, just go ahead and kill them all. Yeah, well, and destroy entire populations of people with right. gas or whatever. Okay. Just use more drones. Wow. It's crazy. And then half report the numbers and pat yourself on the I didn't back. Know, I, did, I wasn't sure he said he loved what Saddam did in certain situations. Okay, but he did. Okay. So he say, he started out saying he's a bad guy. Bad guy. But he bad. was good on terrorism. But nobody could kill terrorists and innocents. I mean, because it's hard sometimes to know if you're innocent or just a terrorist. I mean, he could just kill Muslims, but a lot of them are Muslim over there. Like he could praise... I don't know, Hitler, for yeah. many of the things he did. He's bad in some areas, as you yeah. can imagine. Or use a quote from he like was Mussolini. Good on, like, he was good on border policy, right? It's he hard. just invaded the neighbor. It was fine. Yeah. 
I mean, it's I, it's hard to go after someone who did so much bad, yeah. and praise them for anything and not come out on the other side. I guess looking bad, like he this morning he's taking a lot of hits because of his praise of Saddam Hussein. Saddam did so much yeah. bad, and you're praising him for, but he was bad. I mean, he was bad. Yeah, but did some great things. <laughs> I guess. Okay. No, I'm just checking. Just want to make sure we got it. Wow, man. Politics. What do you do? What do you do? Well, just get informed. That's all we can do. Keep you informed, up to date. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about your student debt. 42% or so of Americans uh, have borrowed money from the government and are currently behind in their payments or not even making their payments. Is there a problem there? Stick with us. We'll be talking about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, do you have a child that's uh, gone to college and taken out student loans? Do you, Have you yourself taken out some student loans? Well, 43% of people who have borrowed money from the government uh, for student loans are currently behind on their payments or no longer even are making payments. This number doesn't even account for the millions of borrowers who also struggle to pay loans but have declared bankruptcy. And uh, so we wanted to talk about this, this problem, this growing problem that, uh, that may be setting our country up for another financial collapse. Uh, joining us is Dr. Richard Fossey. He's a professor of education at the University of Louisiana, and Dr. Neil Hutchins, a professor of higher education at the University of Mississippi. They, join me, they both join me by telephone to discuss their extensive research on the student debt crisis. Dr. Fossey, Dr. Hutchins, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Thank you both for Thank being you. with us. This um, this is such a big deal. We're we're here at uh, BYU campus, and I I talk to students, and I see the concerns they have. In fact, I I even think it might be driving people away from getting degrees because they're they're mounting up the student debt, but they can't necessarily have a or find the job that will pay off the debt. What are you both learning? In fact, Dr. Fossey, let's start with you. What are you learning um, in your research about the impact that the, the student loan crisis is having? Well, it's, it's having a, a, a major impact. You know, economically, students are finding that the, the debt they're acquiring it doesn't, isn't justified. Uh, there's a study out recently that... Uh, 45% of, of people in their early to late 20s who have college degrees are in jobs that don't require college degrees. Oh, wow. And over the entire uh, life of uh, the workforce, up to age 65, 35% of people who with college degrees are in jobs that don't require those degrees. So if people borrow a lot of money to go to college and then get a job that doesn't even require a college degree, they've actually been hurt by their college experience. Yeah, and, yeah. and oh, the is, but they've got then they've got all this debt. So yeah, and they've got all this debt. Yeah, so they've been hurt. And um, and uh, talk to us about that, Doctor Hutchins, um, because these numbers it, it's it's not like you can get rid of this debt, right? So if you are in a if you're in a 
career or a job that didn't even require the degree and you can't make the money and you can't make ends meet, you also can't file for bankruptcy on this debt. Right. And, um, you know, Matt, if we think about it, there's even though maybe some people um, technical training or something is another you know path they should have considered, for many people, going to college is still a wonderful option. There's the career aspects. There's the, just the life enhancement aspects. But, but one of the things that's happened in higher education and it's a shift really over the past several decades is we've really put the risk on the individual. So it used to be that, um, you know, someone could go to a com- community college, which those are still generally uh, much more affordable than other institutions or a state public institution and get a degree. And those are used to be subsidized much more by state governments. States really have you know, they've disinvested in higher education. We've put most of the burden, more and more of the burden, on the individual. Hmm. Uh, so in that sense, we've put the risk, if you go and get a degree, um, and, and for instance, with the economic downturn we had several years ago, things don't work out. Uh, Richard and I both um, have law degrees, so we have a law background. You have a lot of individuals that several years ago, they thought going to law, to, law school is a good idea. Um, we had basically an incredible shift in the uh, legal employment market. And so those jobs just don't exist anymore. So these people have can have up to several hundred thousand dollars in debt. Um, and so for them, they're left with, I made a plan. The plan didn't work. What do I do now? Uh, for businesses, for instance, in, in that scenario, they might well go into bankruptcy, individuals sometimes have to do that. But student loan debt is different than most other types of debt. Hmm. Um, In bankruptcy, to discharge student loan debt, you have to satisfy what is called the undue hardship standard, which is a very difficult standard for many borrowers to satisfy and is really uh, a standard that we don't apply to most types of debt. Um, So for students who find themselves in the position of really just being unable to pay their student loan debt, for various reasons, um, that that can still follow them literally for decades. You you can, I, I guess, um, the government will. Uh, what's it called? Like release you from these loans if you choose to work in certain you know non for profit areas or other kind of community service type of jobs, right? Yeah, yeah there, there are there are discharge programs. For instance, people involved in. Um, the nonprofit sector, um, and there are provisions that have been made that we are getting better at. It's not enough. So, for instance, one of the one of the, the basis for um, forgiveness or discharge can be people who are permanently disabled. That's been on the books for a long time, but it's actually in practice was very hard for individuals who would have qualified based on disability, permanent disability, to get the discharge. Uh, recently, the Obama administration has made strides into making that process easier, which it should be. So um, we have seen progress in certain areas. Also, we know that for-profit higher education, students who attend those types of institutions, and Richard um, really can talk, I think, really well to this issue, um, the for-profit institutions have really disproportionately been an area where we've seen students accrue very, very large uh, student loan debt, and then have found their employability prospects uh, very limited. Yeah. Talk about that, Dr. Fossey. What do you think about 
uh, the for-profit. I mean, that's that seems like a newer idea that you know for the past twenty or thirty years, some organizations have been making tens of millions of dollars educating. Yeah, that's a huge problem. It's it's interesting that the Democratic Party platform, which was uh, released yesterday in a draft form, uh, promises to clean up the scandal with the for-profit industry, which which I think is a is a good sign. It, it, it's just awful. Uh, the for-profits absorb about 25% of federal student aid money, but they only educate about 10% of the students. Hmm. There was a great study done by uh, Senator Tom Harkin's uh, committee in, in the Senate about three years ago on the for-profit industry. Everybody's interested in this should read that report. Uh, they found that, of course, cost, uh, tuition costs to attend a for-profit are much higher than the cost of attending a public institution. Uh, that for-profits have very high default rates, and they have uh, uh, very high um, uh, dropout rates, and the job prospects for people that graduate from these schools aren't as, as good. So it's, it's, a, it's a serious problem. Now, the state attorney generals have been moving on the for-profits, uh, going after them for violating state consumer protection laws, and have put a lot of pressure on the for-profits. And you're beginning to see the for-profits uh, crumble, basically. Like uh, University of Phoenix, its student enrollment has dropped by about half. And its stock, which is once about almost $90 a share is down to $9 a share. Uh, and several of the other for-profits are are in trouble. Corinthian College has filed for bankruptcy. So we're seeing a lot of turmoil in that industry, but the students who attended these schools and borrowed money to attend these schools are are, are really stretched out. They're, they're in a lot of trouble. The Department of of education uh, has a process for people to discharge their loans uh, if they attended a school that uh, defrauded them. But the, the process is, is very cumbersome. Uh, uh, Corinthian Colleges, which is in bankruptcy, had about 300,000 students at the time it filed for bankruptcy, but only about 3,000 3, of them have received dis- discharges from the Department of Education. Mm. So really what there has to be is a a streamlined process for discharging the loans of people who attended these for-profits, yeah. which are beginning to close. Let's let's take a break, uh, gentlemen. We're talking about the student debt problem. When we come back, I'd love to get in. I mean, so half, 42% or so are struggling or not, are actually not paying or are in a... Um, or you know, in a in an inability to pay for their current loans, not even making any payments. Then let's just say there's the other fifty eight percent. Some of those, by the way, are in bankruptcy in their own lives. But then there's the others that are just still underemployed and are drowning in making their payments. Wow, how do we get unstuck from this? And is this setting us up for another uh, financial collapse? What happens when we have entire generations of people educated, but maybe, uh, you know, not effectively educated or uh, overeducated in their ability to actually go get the job to compensate for what they've learned? Man, stick with us, folks. We're going to try to understand this better, give you some solutions, some ideas for what you can do if you're in, uh, find yourself in the uh, student debt, you know, avalanche. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking with Dr. Richard Fossey and Dr. Neil Hutchins. Uh, Dr. Uh, Fossey is from the University of, uh, of Louisiana at Lafayette and is the endowed professor of education there. He also specializes in research on the student debt crisis. Dr. Neil Hutchins is a professor of education at the University of Mississippi, and his research focuses on higher education. I mean, the goal, gentlemen, um, is we want we want education, right? We wanted everybody to be educated, and it seemed like for years everybody had this great opportunity. The government would subsidize it. Uh, you go it would actually provide the loans, the funding. Then you just got to pay back the government once you're making your big money. But apparently, it all fell apart. Is that is that pretty much the gist of of what we're hearing here, Doctor Fossey? Yeah, that that's basically what happened. Um, what what turned it? What what turned first of all the the government back in the seventies? You could still you know file bankruptcy uh, with your student loans, but something started to turn. It seems like even as early as the seventies that you know what the government's not going to be on the line for this anymore. Yeah, um, and Neil can talk about this uh, uh, some as well. Congress changed the bankruptcy code, and uh, initially there was no restriction on discharging your student loans and bankruptcy. Then Congress put a, uh, a five-year window in there. You could not discharge your student loans within five years after you started repayment. Then it expanded it beyond that. And then Congress said, no matter when you took out your loan, you cannot discharge a student loan in bankruptcy unless you can show undue hardship, as Neil was saying. Yeah. That Undue hardship standard wasn't uh, defined by Congress in the statute, but the bankruptcy courts have defined it in very harshly under the so-called uh, the Brunner test. It's extremely difficult to discharge a student loan in bankruptcy. Now, there's been some shifts. Neil and I have both been researching on this. A few bankruptcy courts have shown some compassion and, co- and common sense. And there seems to be a window opening up to make it easier for people to file bankruptcy, which I'm convinced is really the only solution to this problem, absolutely the only solution. Well, talk and to me about that, that for a minute, Dr. Fossey, because um, the, the, those are really – I mean, it seems like there is, has been some, some, uh, some headway made there, except it's still extreme situations, right? It's a, one example is a 68-year-old woman with chronic health problems – and uh, only has an income of $780 a month from Social Security, and so they forgave her loan. Right. That's the Roth case. Yeah. I mean, but that's extreme, right? I mean, that's... That's very extreme. Yeah. That shows you just how extreme the government's position has been. And and there are other cases that are just as shocking. Yeah. But but in that case, the Roth case, the uh, bankruptcy appellate panel out of the Ninth Circuit said that... uh, it would be futile to put her into a long-term repayment plan and uh, discharge her loan in spite of the fact that she never made a single payment. Okay. And, and that's been a roadblock for a lot of borrowers. They, they never are in a position where they can really make a payment, and so they, they fail the good-faith standard. The court said, well, you never, you never showed a good-faith effort to pay it back. So that might be— In the Roth case, the court said, well, she did, she did her best to maximize her income. She lived frugally. And we think she operated in good faith. That, that's a, 
a step forward. Yeah, that's that's the pre- that might be the precedence that you know if you just can't make a payment, you can't make a payment. Um, but uh, two, I guess so. One of the bits of advice I'm hearing is for anybody out there that has a student loan, stay active on the loan, uh, do whatever you can, keep communicating with the loan people, and make payments, whatever payment you can have, just so you look like you're making a best effort. Yeah, a- absolutely. That good faith test is is where a lot of, of people fail in their efforts to, to discharge their loans in bankruptcy. Yeah. They can't show that they tried during yeah. periods when they, they had income to pay, to make payments. Dr. Hutchins, talk to us about what what about I mean those those situations are horrible and it sounds like about 42% of those with lo- these loans at least plus those on top of that that have bankruptcy and other issues they're they're all in trouble and underwater. What about the the person that maybe was able with their degree to go get a $45,000 a year job, a $50,000 a year job but still have to pay really high loan payments back and it's it's putting them into debt because they can't pay back their loan they can't they can't get out of the hole right and i think that's a real problem so the the percentages and figures we've been discussing certainly people who aren't paying back you have a lot of people who are struggling and i I think a couple of things, and there has been some action in recent years. For instance, we've come up with uh, different uh, different options for repayment. But I think there's some basic things that we really have to consider from, from a policy point. I think for, for some reason, and some of it has to be many student loans or um, they're, they're, su- they're subsidized by the government. We make these kind of these, uh, we want to treat it very much as it's, it's a moral shortcoming when people can't pay back their loans, even though we don't treat most to many kinds of debts in bankruptcy that way. Um, but I think just as Richard was talking about, we need to really think about undue hardship. We need to think about some of the things that we do. So here's one, for instance. People who have to get an economic deferment, interest can still accrue on those loans. So one of the problems that we have is someone may have taken out, say, $75,000 in student loans, but if they're having trouble repaying and they have to take these deferments, the interest can just keep accruing. They can have payments where they're not even paying the principal down on the loan. Um, we need, from a policy standpoint, if, if people, again, are making those kinds of good faith efforts like you're talking about, we really need to consider how do we make it where they're actually making progress on paying down that debt. And so maybe we have income contingent repayment plans, but maybe even loan amounts and other things, we really need to think about tying that to um, to making it where, where the loan, the debt doesn't just keep accumulating. And that actually happens to some people. So, so making some good sense policy decisions uh, to help those people where they just don't get deeper and deeper into the, the debt waters. Because it also seems like these people are, they're not going to go buy a home now. They've got debt. It, they, they can't get out of that debt. So, I mean, it's, it's, all, it's going to impact the economy, right? Exactly, and that's, there's already been uh, news coverage and uh, studies on that. The fact that people are accumulating so much in student debt, that has trigger effects for the rest of the economy. And so we really have to think about if we're, we're assigning a generation of students to this tremendous amount of debt, that has ramifications later on for buying homes, uh, which uh, equates to things like 
job mobility and other kinds of things. So this this really does, and you have had lawmakers that have talked about the student loan bubble, comparing it to the housing bubble. Um, This is an issue that's really important as we think about not just for those debtors, student loan debtors, but for our economy larger. And I, I also think, again, it's important that we address the people that are facing the difficulty now, because it's millions of people. But I really think moving forward as well, as we have new generations of students coming forward, we really need to take a hard look at helping students to get better information as consumers before they take on student loan debt, what kinds of institutions that they maybe um, need to attend. But also, um, and we've had proposals about lowering the cost of free college cost, at least for the first two years, but again, if we want the American dream to reach across all sectors of society, we really have to think about that access issue and the cost issue um, uh, across society. Well, and Bernie Sanders really made a, you know, he made a, a big dent in Hillary Clinton and her and her proposals by just offering free colleges, free college access, go to school, learn, get your degrees, do what you need to do, but find a way to do it for free. Do you see that that would be an answer or is that just more throwing money, you know, more loss of money? Actually, Matt, that that idea is not as crazy as some people said it was. Uh, There was an estimate that that would cost about $70 billion to, to give free college education, $70 billion a year at public institutions. We're losing more than that under the, the current program because we have high default rates mm. and we have millions of people now in these long-term income-based repayment plans, as Neil said, who are making payments so low that they're not covering the interest. So they're yeah. not paying back their loan. So it's it, costing it more. Really would, would probably be cheaper just to say, listen, you can, we, we will give you a free college degree at a public institution. Now, and that's, that idea moved the Democratic Party platform a bit. I, I, it, hmm. I, know, I just read this yesterday that uh, the Democratic platform proposes free community college education. Uh, so that's, that's not a bad idea. Politically, though, I don't think it can happen because um, if that were to be instituted, the for-profit colleges would go out of business. Right. And they have strong political strength. And the, the the private liberal arts colleges, which have very high tuition, would would be under stress as well because if people could go to a good state university for free, right, they're not going to go to to, to Wellesley or or Smith or wh- wherever. So, uh, I think politically, it's it's not possible to do, but it, it, it it's not a bad idea. What would you suggest for the rest of us that have? maybe children that might need student loans or those that are already upside down and just they're treading water. And I mean, they're really, I know people that are hoping for the 20 year forgiveness thing, you know, 20 years into this, the the loan, I guess, could be forgiven. Look, Neil, why don't you talk about that? I've got something to say about that, but I, 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 let me hold off. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Neil. Well, you know, one thing, and, and again, bankruptcy is not an option that people take lightly. Um, you know, there are serious consequences. Um, I just recently, my wife and I bought a house. Credit ratings and other things really affect that. So we know people don't take it lightly. But one study had indicated, and I think because there is, it is very hard to discharge loans, 
but actually some people who might qualify, maybe because of their life circumstances, um, one study indicated that there aren't as many people that might not seeking the undue hardship standard who might qualify. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So, so one thing is, someone's really in difficult, a difficult situation. Um, if that might be something worth considering, um, as Richard was talking about, we're also seeing some loosening of courts. Uh, the courts have the authority to define the undue hardship standard, and so if we could see a trend where courts start being a little bit more humane in that, that might um, open up those gates um, just a little bit. So. Uh, one idea that comes to mind for people in that situation is considering that and even going through that process, people can sometimes um, be able um, to find reductions in their loans. One of the things that the U.S. Department of Education did in 2015 uh, was to put out guidance for when you should not challenge um, an undue hardship. So, hmm. so, so there is some movement, and I think part of it is we've got – we know it's hard to discharge, so some people who might qualify – may not even be trying. Yeah. Well, and again, those that got into the trouble in the first place might have a harder time to know how to get out of it in the second place. Um, Just, just because it's more, it's more information. It's more, it's more in-depth kind of uh, practice. Wrap it up for us, Richard. Uh, What do you think? What, what, what else can we do? What else do we need to watch out for? You got about a minute. Okay. Well, I agree with what what Neil was saying. This this study that that Neil referred to us by a guy named Emiliano, very interesting. He looked at bankruptcy records and found that in one year there were a quarter, almost a quarter of a million people who filed bankruptcy who had student loans, but only about 300 of them even tried to discharge their Oh, wow. Yeah. And because they thought it was impossible. And he constructed a little model that found that uh, about 40% of the people who had filed bankruptcy could have gotten some, some relief had they tried to discharge their student loans. And he also found out that people who went in to that process without lawyers did just as bad as well as people who had lawyers. Hmm. So what I believe is that people should consider bankruptcy, and they should consider doing it um, even if they don't have an attorney. Now, they have to be very thoughtful about that process, uh, and they have to have the right circumstances, but... There are millions of people who really have nothing to lose. Right, right. Yeah, they're so upside down anyway. Anyway, Well, we appreciate both of you and your great insight. Um, uh, it's never easy, is it? Uh, and, and the article you wrote in theconversation.com I think was very helpful as well. Dr. Richard Fossey, Dr. Neil Hutchins, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Matt. You bet. And uh, for the rest of us, you know, it's nothing's free, right? Oh, dang it, nothing's free. But in the end, um, you got to get on top of this stuff. Uh, I think this is going to, you know, backdoor our country, and financially, we're going to be we're going to be snuck up here. The, the, they're going to they're coming from behind, and they're going to ambush us. I, I truly believe uh, it's a bubble that's coming. Um, not to scare anybody, but it's, it seems like the thing where no one's paying attention to, except for, of course, the millions of people that are underwater. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. The 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, so complicated, truly, and uh, difficult if you are, you know, underwater with student debt. And some maybe just have $20,000 or $10,000 in student loans. And that in and of itself is overwhelming. But for those that are 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, 100,000 that went to get a law degree and they thought their life would be incredible, you know, they'd eventually be an attorney making 200000 It'll be easy to pay off the loan. Uh, no. And now what? And then your hope, your dreams um, change. That's one of the things that debt is going to cost all of us, I believe, is freedom. Right? The minute you're stuck in uh, the debt cycle, having to pay off your loans, you're not going to be free to do what you most wanted to do, to, to offer your best self. And instead, you still might do good things. But I know people now that are choosing to work for nonprofits, choosing to take major, major cuts in income because they want to basically get their student loans forgiven. Which is great, I guess, for community, (laughs) except it might be one of the reasons why so many people are just not incentivized. They're not motivated. Seventy percent of employees in the United States are disengaged, and some of it might simply be because we're not working for passion. We're not working for purpose. We're working to pay off a loan uh, to a school that we feel shafted us or gave us a promise that maybe wasn't as legit as, as it could have been. So. It's a real deal. I would push on your your elected officials uh, to start looking at it because give 10 more years of this, I think you're going to have a major backlash from a lot of people that are frustrated and exhausted by it. So watch out for it. Talk to your elected officials, and we'll take a break, folks. When we come back next hour, interesting uh, research and, and work from Anna Redmond about uh, how to work with your boss. If, you're, if your boss is a female and you're a male – Do you just approach him like any other boss? Well, according to our next guest next hour, there might be some tricks. There might be some tricks to find out about. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, folks. Hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. Top of the morning to you. Man alive. Uh, We just talked student debt, student debt. Debt. It seems like some people are never, ever going to get out of that. That was an entire hour of people looking for a bailout. Yeah. I have no student debt. Well, you're not a student. Okay. Of Next life, point. I am, yeah. <laughs> student of life. Um, today, uh, this hour, though, we will be talking about do, do you need to think differently if your boss is – an opposite gender person, let's say. Okay, so does if I, do I if my boss were a woman, do I need to approach her differently than I would my regular boss, Don? You know, like when Don no. walks down the hall, I yell Don Quixote because I right. think that's cute. You know, or Hey Donnie. Yeah, despite just not even thinking about his feelings at all. Right. Okay, but that's okay because you're guys and it's the thing you do, and yeah, we know. But. 
but should I treat my boss differently just based on their gender? You should treat them differently on their based on their personality. Yeah. Things that they like. Like he may not enjoy you calling him Don Quixote. Oh, he loves Don Quixote. Have you confirmed this? No. You're but you assuming. can see in his eye he's got that twinkle. It's rage. That's that rage that, that he the has rage. at times. Yeah. Is that rage? Oh my I heavens. I don't know, but maybe you do. Maybe I, you do need to approach bosses differently based on gender. I don't know. Well, according to our next guest who wrote an uh, a, an interview or did a report of an article in entrepreneur.com, Anna Redmond, she says, yeah. Hmm. Just you don't have to – I mean everyone's going to be different. But there are some style differences that women may have that men don't have. And hmm. you might want to at least make sure – you know the difference. We'll get into it. Hmm. Some would say, come on, that's just like gender stereotyping. Yeah. We'll ask her. Okay. I think you ought to always know who you're talking to. Know your audience? Yeah. Yeah. It's probably a good idea. You yeah. wouldn't you wouldn't refer to a a female boss named Jane as Don Quixote. No, I'd go, ah, like Tarzan and Jane. See, that wouldn't work either. That'd probably get you fired. She's probably heard that before. Doesn't think it's funny. <laughs> it's not as funny. But we'll ask Anna at Redmond. We'll see what she says. There's there there to me, I believe there are some differences, but they're not like universal. Everyone's a little different. So know your boss. But mm. some of the work she cites is the fact that uh words um you know, men might like to spar more with words, so they might talk more aggressively with each other, and the words don't seem to be as offensive. Mm-hmm. But Being um, guys, yeah, yeah. But words can be apparently more offensive to some women. So just know that and know your difference. Again, uh, we'll ask Anna what she thinks and how, how not to take this to just be gender stereotyping as well. We'll get to that in just a few moments, um, along with, by the way, some interesting headlines we got to get to, including – uh, the, I don't know if you heard this. The Game Changer, they found a giant helium field. We, we were supposed to run out of helium in about 20 years, which meant parties, done. No more balloons. No more power lines brought down by those metallic-looking balloons. No more. But now they found a helium field, and we have a reporter on the scene. It's going to be fantastic. So we'll get to that in a few moments. But first, let's get to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Caitlin, what's up? Well, this morning, Matt, um, in his first appearance with Hillary Clinton on the campaign trail, President Obama spoke about Clinton's qualifications and how the election in November is really not a choice at all. Obama praised Clinton's credentials and extensive experience and even credited her time as his Secretary of State as a reason global perception of America has improved since he took office in 2009. Donald Trump told a crowd in Raleigh, North Carolina on Tuesday that deposed Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein was not a good person but had a knack for killing terrorists. Quote, says Donald Trump, he was a bad guy, a really bad guy, but you know what he did well? He killed terrorists. He did that really well. They didn't read them the rights. They didn't talk. They were terrorists. It was over. Today, Iraq is Harvard for terrorism. You want to be a terrorist, you go to Iraq. House Speaker Paul Ryan rebuked Trump Tuesday night, saying Hussein, considered by the U.S. government a major sponsor of terrorism, was, quote, one of the 20th century's most evil people. Chuck Grasley, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, wants the FBI to make public the findings of its investigation into Hillary Clinton's exclusive use of a private email 
served as Secretary of State. The Iowa Republican believes the agency should be transparent about the evidence it uncovered in order to, quote, avoid giving the impression that the FBI was pulling punches. A new USA Today poll revealed that a whopping 61% of Americans admit to feeling alarmed about the election and the direction the country is headed. The poll of 1,000 likely voters found that many feel less safe living in the United States than they used to and gives negative ratings to both presidential candidates. USA Today reports just 23% reported feeling excited about the change November's election will bring. And lastly, House Speaker Paul Ryan scolded Donald Trump on Tuesday, saying the presumptive Republican presidential nominee has, quote, got to clean up the way his new media works. Trump has come under fire for tweeting a graphic accusing Hillary Clinton of being the most corrupt candidate ever, yeah. complete with an image of Clinton, $100 bills, and a six-pointed star that looks like a Star of David, deemed by many as anti-Semitic, which we talked about earlier this week. It was a sheriff star. It was right. a sheriff star. That's what, I mean, that's what he wants us all to believe. I, I don't From really From the know. Jewish contingent. I just give the news. I don't special care. weapons and tactics. It was a template of a Microsoft program. It's not their fault. Thank you, Caitlin. I mean, and apparently MSNBC yesterday morning was actually previewing the Microsoft program that they said they got the template from. And people were like, this is where the news has gone. We're now looking at really right. bad software to, to explain presidential <laughs> campaign yeah, decisions. Microsoft's not known for having the best graphics. No. Right? You'd go with Apple or who knows. This is really funny. Anyway, uh, Donald can't even win. He can't even – his Paul Ryan's getting on him now. Like yeah. he, Paul Ryan's even saying you can't have racist well, you know, symbols in your campaign. So he, he mentioned the, the – he needs to clean up his social media, right? Right. He needs it to be better because what you're doing – and you, you, this is twice now they've retweeted stuff that is sourced from white supremacist websites – you know, that's twice that you'd be able to track yeah. graphics back to that. That's where they were created and first originated. And this, and then he went on. Uh, Paul Ryan was on Fox News last night and had to talk about Trump praising Saddam Hussein yeah. for his way he handled terrorism. D- David Duke, the known white supremacist, <laughs> is eventually going to send a bill to Donald saying, "Hey, if you keep using our stuff, thanks, so, man. Somebody needs to bill him." Ah. Uh. It's I think, too, it's a sign that you've got to organize. This is why campaigns have layers and layers of of experts. Even yesterday, Donald should have probably been ready to pounce on the whole uh, FBI announcement. They knew it was coming. That is a great graphic. That's great visual. Have Comey. He he came out eventually with it, but it that should have been ready instantly. That wasn't hard to make. No. Comey, Hillary says this. Comey says this. Mm-hmm. Hillary says this. Comey says this. That should be playing across the country right now, day in and day out. It'll get out in a couple weeks. Yeah, but there's the power in the in the now. Mitt Romney, I read, had a process before a tweet went out. It went through about ten people. Yeah, to Smart. vet and make sure that everything was was in order and this is where graphics came from was, the, were any of them experts in jewish stars i don't know the star of david six point star what i think he was a part-time employee yeah <laughs> it's always a part-timer that's a great idea though 10 people have to so donald would have to send his tweet to 10 people before it comes back and then donald could say go no Donald just tweets. He just does it. Donald checks with his butler. None of this politically correct stuff, like, you know, back (laughs) back checking. But that's fine. Like, can't you just see somebody, Donald, sitting on his travertine marble uh, shower stall? Yes. It's gold. Waiting to get into the shower. Gold plated. Has a towel around him, and he's tweeting. He's like, wait a second. I have a thought. 
I better tweet this before I get in the shower. Fire that off. Then he thinks it through in the shower and he gets out and like, ah, I better change this because that didn't sound quite right. Hey, great news. If you are one who loves helium, mm. uh, scientists are calling this a game changer for society has been discovered deep. Uh, so f- for society discovered deep in Tanzania's Rift Valley is a massive helium gas field with enough of the precious commodity to fill more than 1.2 million MRI scanners. MRI scanners need helium. So it's not just for the kids anymore. So what would we have done? We would have run out of helium. Man, besides the sheer amount of gas, the discovery is notable because it appears to be for the first time that stores of helium have been purposefully found. So now we can go looking for them, right? We're going to go look for our helium. Hmm. To put it in context, the Federal Helium Reserve in Texas, which supplies more than 40% of domestic helium, needs and contains about 30% of the world's total helium supply. And um, they just found 54 billion cubic feet. The Texas supply is 24.2 billion cubic feet. So it's double Texas's supply. It's huge. It's such a big deal that we sent a reporter to uh, to the scene to just to to hear the press conference and to talk to the people there. It's interesting though because it was a little windy. Mm. It's a little windy. So today marks at the a field. monumentous uh, occasion for for Renegen, for Linda, and for Afrox. And it spells the beginning of oh. an agreement whereby Renegen, through its subsidiary Tetrafor, this must be an, will another person. Natural Munch, gas, Munchkin which news? contains high concentrations of helium. Oh, yeah, I think it's the helium. Oh, boy. A plant which will help us there's, in, I think there's um, just the wind changing. Removing the helium from yeah. the natural yeah. gas stream, and that will then be handed over to Afrox, yeah. who will operate the plant, and they will distribute the helium wow. to oh, wow. in South Africa. That's it. That's wow. Oh, now he's normal again. Yeah, so the wind shifts. Hmm. It's kind of like going in and out of Munchkin land. Well, it is a, a helium field. Yeah. There's... I don't know if the helium field's a good place to hold a press conference. No. Wouldn't you get lightheaded after a while? Oh, yeah. It's a lot of yeah. helium to consume. It's but... like when you watch those reporters uh, as they're burning like a pound, you know, a million pounds of marijuana behind them. Right. They always want to get that in the, the background to... <laughs> Yeah. It's just not a good idea. Okay. I, wh- why Maybe we shouldn't, ten- we shouldn't send anybody. That's just bad for Would him. Would Tanzania float better? Yeah. With more helium? Did you see the guy kicking soccer goals with a helium inflated ball? No. That Amazing. doesn't sound like it would be productive. It's incredible. Okay. You can put a lot of magic on that ball. <laughs> Messi's in trouble. Yeah, I saw that. Messi's in a mess. Lionel Messi with tax evasion. Well, and this seems like a this is a and weird his father, deal. Both of them, yeah. But apparently, they don't go to jail because it's under it's a, it's a minor offense. Yeah. So they, he, he he should go to jail, but they won't track to like, him down. It was like twenty one months or something, yeah. but they're not going to unless, of course, it. Spain thinks they could win the World Cup by putting Messi in jail. Take their best player and take him off the field. Yeah, Snow was Spain, right? Messi's from Argentina. So in the World Cup. No, but he plays for Barcelona. No, exactly. So they'll have, but he can't go back to Barcelona now, can he? Because he'll go to jail. So I think. Well, they're saying he probably won't enforce it. Unless it gets to the World Cup in a few years and Argentina's playing Spain. Then that guy's in jail. I don't know. And his father. I don't know where, you know, country loyalties versus your team loyalty. No, where those lines it's cross. country. Once you get to the country over Copa, team, all right. it's all over. All over. So, Matt, do you use Snapchat? 
I have used it once. You've used it once? And that's how I keep in touch with Kaylee. There's a new report out that has uh, Snapchat has about 150 million daily active users. Uh, Hillary Clinton just added. And she added also, investors value Snapchat at $16 billion. What? I know. That's not, that's crazy. But what they're finding now on Twitter, teens now routinely complain about their parents using Snapchat. Why? Because you the can kids, embarrass your kids. The kids were on Facebook. Yeah. Then they left because their parents showed up. They can't have their conversations with their friends because their parents are there. So they go to other you know, social media, end up on Snapchat because it has this nifty little feature where you can set a timer and the message disappears. will disappear. But see, this is what all children need to know is that you can't run from us. Now the problem is their parents are on Snapchat. They're like, Mom, we are watching you. It's not as cool. The trend resembles the way parents jumped on Facebook and the kids moved away. A recent ComScore report declared that Snapchat is breaking into the mainstream, estimating that 38% of U.S. smartphone users ages 25 to 34 are on Snapchat. I don't like it. 14% of that are 35 and over. Really? Three years ago, those numbers were 5% and 2%. I don't like it because I don't know if you've noticed this. Now, anytime I'm talking uh, off air, Kaylee's like got her phone out. Yeah. The producers are... Which is, I think, it's a violation of my privacy. It's I inter- have the right... It's an inappropriate snap. Yeah. It's really what it comes down to. Right. It's snapping without permission. So the kids are getting frustrated because their parents are there, but what, because the way Snapchat works is you're kind of walled off. Right. So you have to actually be a friend of somebody else. Mm-hmm. They can't just sort of send a... On Facebook, you can kind of be a friend of a friend and see things sometimes. Snapchat doesn't work that way. You've got to so be So the in kids the are kind of mad, but they're not leaving Snapchat because their parents really can't see what's going on. Unless you're an actual follower. Or unless you're stealing your child's phone every night. There, you can do that. Too. But I can't see what they did during the day. Yeah, because they the expire. Problem. So there's some, there's some there's some security there for the kids if they don't Who want their parents to Who invented Snapchat? That is – that person's a deviant, <laughs> hypothetically. Because why would you not want to see your kids' videos? Jeez. What do you do? We will take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, an article in Entrepreneur.com, How to Report to a Woman if You're a Man. Now, what? Shouldn't we all report the same way? We'll talk about it. We'll find out. Uh, should we Should we look at our the gender of our boss and figure out a new way to report based on gender? Well, according to our next guest, you might want to consider it. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, 42% of managers in the United States are female. And uh, with more and more women managing uh, teams in corporate America, that doesn't necessarily mean that your work culture is used to a uh, a female leader, per se. According to some uh, research um, done by UCLA's uh, Kim Ellisar, In her book, Gender Bias Against Female Leaders, she talks about the fact that uh, there is evidence that female leaders are evaluated less favorably than their male counterparts and are liked less than their male counterparts. 
and are penalized for adopting masculine leadership styles. And so we were looking into the subject a little bit more, found a wonderful article by our next guest, Anna Redmond. She wrote the article, How to Report to a Woman If You're a Man, that appeared in Entrepreneur.com magazine, and we're honored to have you here. Anna Redmond, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. This is, um, to me, this is a really important uh, discussion, and I think confusing in a way for some. A couple days ago, I don't remember when it was, probably last week, I guess, we talked about how important it is to watch out for gender stereotypes and, and things like that, except your article cites some really interesting research about the fact that men... Uh, you know, we still kind of live in male-dominated business cultures um, in many regards, except more and more women are taking leadership roles, and it seems to be creating some confusion, you you believe. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think you're spot on in pointing out that a lot of what's going on, you know, we think of these issues as really being black and white and someone coming in and saying, you know, explicitly, oh my gosh, I am never going to report to a woman women clearly can't run things as well as men. And that's really not what's going on here at all. And the conversations that I was having with other fellow entrepreneurs and CEOs were completely different. They were much more subtle. It was more of, you know, I have this team and there's this guy I hired and he was fantastic at the interview and he was so supportive. And he said he'd love to work for a female boss. But now I'm running headlong into issue X, Y, Z, and I just don't know what's going on. Um, and so I really did a lot of research, and that informed what uh, you know the points that I made in this article. Talk about some of the things you learned too, because you cited many uh, CEOs that that you work with, and it, it seems like some people would just think these are human problems, you know, just personality issues. Except there are. There are some differences, uh, even in some of the academic research about how men might use words, how women might statistically use words differently. Talk to us about some of your findings. Sure. And and actually, I want to address your point. So I think it is really dangerous for us to think that it's a human problem for both men and women, because when we do that, then the woman who's in a position of power and running into these issues goes ahead and internalizes that and says, you know what, this is actually just me personally being a leader who is ineffective Hmm. in this way. And that's really problematic because what it is actually is is a very subtle gender bias that has been proven time and time again to actually be something that we've internalized. So, you know, I'll I'll throw out a couple of those issues. Um, You know, for starters, men reporting to women, and there have been studies on this. This is not just a group of women getting together in a room and saying, I feel that this is true. This has been backed up by the numbers, um, are consistently worse at taking feedback, especially if it's negative feedback from female bosses than they are from male bosses. So that's problematic because obviously when you begin a relationship with an employee, you always begin it in a very positive place. You're both excited about what you can do together and what you can accomplish. And then the first time you need to provide feedback that's less than complimentary, you start running into obstacles or issues and there's friction. And, um, and, and then that friction, um, I mean, I, I could see you're my boss, you're now giving me feedback and you're either giving me different feedback than I've had or you're, feed, you're giving me feedback in a way that I've never heard it. Is, is that the problem? Is how you're giving me the feedback or is it just, is it just that I have a bias against my female boss? 
be both things, and we, we've seen both things. So, so there's, there's certainly a point that the current business climate, just by virtue of having had more men in it, again, this isn't something that anyone sees as being intentional or mean-spirited, really reflects um, what I would call male gender norms. Um, and again, this isn't something that, that's by design. It's just if you have environments that are 80% male, then that's what's going to happen. And so when a woman comes in and she operates a little bit differently, whether it's by being a little bit softer or not offering feedback in quite the same way, um, then men really perceive that within their current context of gender norms. And so there is this interesting dynamic where if a male leader comes in and he's really chatty and very personable and when he gives feedback, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't say, oh my gosh, this is terrible. He says, you know, let's try this a little bit differently. Let's work together. Because he's a male and he's kind of within that schematic, generally what people would say is, oh, you know, John is great. He tends to lead a little differently. He's unique in that way. But when a woman does the same thing, and again, this is subconscious. This isn't something people are doing explicitly. Then the reaction is more, oh, Sarah is leading this way because she's a woman. Hmm. And, and, that is, and that is really, really tough to get around. And I think part of the, you know, part of the disappointment of writing this article um, was both that when you look at all of these studies, you see that all of these things are super subtle, that they add up. And that it's not as easy as saying to a man, you know, you need to respect women, you need to change the way you're behaving in the workplace, because a lot of it isn't, isn't even explicit. And, and honestly, the other challenging thing, and I did not look at this in my article, but it's nonetheless true, is that when you look at studies of female leaders, you see that they're being evaluated by those standards by both men and women. And so sometimes there can be female employees who are really used to having a male boss, and whether it's you know, maybe even not within their workplace, but they see that, you know, everywhere else in our culture, whether you're watching Mad Men or you're seeing how people behave in books or films or even anecdotally, and then you apply those same metrics to women. Hmm. It really is a... Um it's it's kind of a tangled it's kind of a tangled web because it's it's all so much there's there's stuff that's up to interpretation but then there's these inherent biases that we all bring and most of us aren't evaluating our bias right and so one of the reasons it seems like this is a valuable discussion is to at least have everyone start thinking how do you perceive somebody we've we've talked a lot about Hillary Clinton's language on the show and how that is automatically perceived as she's screaming, she's shrill, she's shouting uh, anytime she's speaking firm and loud. And yet, um, you know, then others are like saying, well, no, you're just come on, listen to it, listen to it. But when we come to interpretation, one of the things I'm finding in the corporate America world is with a shift with more and more female managers, there's a lot of benefits that are coming in that we may also not credit uh, kind of a female, more female-oriented or or not even just maybe just a less male-oriented culture is, is being created. Talk about some of the positive benefits you're seeing in management um, as leaders are stepping in and, and, and taking charge, or as women are taking charge in their own organizations. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. And, and I like the way that you changed your language and you said not female-oriented, but just you know, more less male dominated, right? Right, right. Just, just a more egalitarian workplace. And by the way, 
for what it's worth, you know, I talk in my article specifically about this gender imbalance, but the same things happen when you just have homogeneity in the workplace. So if you have all white males Mm -hmm. and minorities, when you have, you know, for instance, no one who speaks a foreign language, people tend to operate in very similar ways. And when you throw diversity into the mix, it, you know, study after study has shown this, um, even, you know, studies on, on school integration, that it always benefits everyone. So it's not like an all-male workplace is really happy and then you bring in right. women and then, uh, and then the women do great, but it's right. the men. It's actually the opposite. Um, and so, you know, when you, when you make workplaces more egalitarian, I think you see less of, you know, less of these dynamics that tend to really reward aggression consistently, which isn't to say that there aren't times and places to reward aggression, because that's definitely not true. Um, you see dynamics where people, um, you know, can be maybe a little more accountable for their actions. I cited the study that was done that showed that men tend to apply for a job when I think they're they're uh, 50% qualified, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, 60%, 50% yeah. 50% qualified, and that that women tend to apply when they're 90% qualified. And I thought that it was very interesting that the reaction of actually a lot of both men and women to this study was, oh my gosh, we need to encourage women to be more assertive and really step up to the plate. And I read this study and I thought, oh my gosh, people should stop applying for jobs that they're not qualified for. <laughs> right. I mean, there, there's something about like a confidence to apply for something that you're really not there. You're not qualified to go after, but boy, you're confident to do it. Yeah, but you're saying, no, it'd be better if we just could all, uh, you know, apply and get more qualified and apply for what we're ready for. Otherwise, we're going to lower the standard, aren't we? Absolutely. And and I think there's a middle ground there. I mean, maybe it's not 90%, maybe it's 70 or 80, but I've had this, you know, I've actually had this uh, experience hiring. And so I've had this experience hiring men and having them be, you know, and again, we've worked with many, many wonderful men who've been very honest about their qualifications, but occasionally people have come in where they're just super confident and they know they can do it. And of course, it's not a problem until they start executing and then it is a problem and then all these things are going wrong. Whereas with women, I've had a different conversation more centered around, gosh, like, I think I can do it. I'm not completely sure. Let me be honest with you about what I've actually done in the past. And the dynamic changes. And then I'm the one saying, you know, why don't you give it a try? I think that I think that based on what we need, you can actually accomplish this for us. And then when she begins to perform, it's really nice. And I know that we're both starting from the same page and she's been really honest with me. Mm. Whereas in the opposite situation, it's sort of, you know, you hear something and you're wondering how much you need to discount it. And again, not everyone does this. And I'm sure that, there are also lots of men who have been honestly hurt by this dynamic. Um, you know, I'll throw this out. I don't cite this in this article, but there were actually a number of studies around Asian Americans and how they, they're kind of culturally raised to be a little bit more um, oriented towards rule following. And so sometimes they struggle in, climbing up the corporate ladder where you need to be more aggressive and entrepreneurial and not really check the boxes, but just go and do things anyway. And I think that applies to both genders, for example. Mm. So if we can take this very male-oriented environment and just temper it a little bit, I think what we end up with benefits everyone. Yeah. In fact, um, 
I think it does. And like again, egalitarian and and seeing all of these traits and maybe not always pegging them as one or another, but but say, knowing that we need them all. Uh, I think I think you're right. That elevates everybody. We're speaking with Anna Redmond, who is the author of the um, article "How to Report to a Woman If You're a Man" in the art in the magazine Entrepreneur.com. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue this discussion and uh, find out an answer because she she asks a wonderful question. What does treating someone like a boss or a male boss actually mean? Are you is 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 a male boss the word or is it just boss? Should we just treat people like a boss? Anyway, we'll talk about that uh, that little hierarchy issue. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, joining us on the phone is Anna Redman. She's the co-founder of Hippo, Hippo Reads, which is a website that features academic writings and has been described as the TED Talks for readers. She is the author of an article, How to Report to a Woman if You're a Man, um, which was featured in Entrepreneur.com. And she's here today talking about that article. Anna Redman, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be here. Talk to me. There's a great, uh, there's just a great question. Um, when we talk about uh, gender, and one of the things we've been talking about is our goal is to create, is to allow really everybody to be who they are, bring their greatest attributes, and create kind of a, I don't know, a really powerful mix of, of all of our talents and our gifts together. Um, one of the things that you ask in your article, which is just, it's not a simple question, but what does treating someone like a male boss actually mean? It seems like many times when we think of boss, we think male. So what happens to us when we have a boss and it's a female? Does that upset the concept that we have in our minds of what a boss is? I think we'd like to think that it doesn't. Um, and unfortunately, there's there's a body of research that shows that it still does, which is unfortunate. And you know, for this for this article, it was first of all it was informed by my own personal experiences uh, running Hippo Reads along with my co-founder, and it was you know it was actually a very interesting personal experience. My co-founder is a woman, also, and there are you know particularly with women, people write about this phenomenon all the time where when something happens, it's often very subtle, and it's hard for a woman to really <clears throat> ascertain whether it's something that's driven by gender bias or whether it's something just that is a unique situation that, that is based on the personality types involved. And so we had, you know, we work with, we certainly have a great core team, but we work with lots and lots of contractors every day in the line of work that we do. And obviously some of them are male. And the seeds for this article really began to germinate when we had multiple experiences where I would have a very odd interaction and I would call Kate and I would say, you know, Kate, this happened. Do you think I did something wrong? Is this? And, and she would give me the feedback of, no, I think, I think you were behaving in absolutely the appropriate way. I can't believe that you had this reaction. And the reaction, of course, would be from someone male that we were working with. Mm. And again, I 
I wanted to clarify that this, this was not by any means an everyday occurrence. It right. happened, you know, in a, in a rare number of circumstances, but enough that we began to see patterns. And our company, you know, as, as you noted, we uh, focus on really bringing academic research to the public. And we also have a very vibrant client services arm that does the same thing for private businesses. And we have access to great academics and research every day. And I said, you know what, I want to look into this issue further. And I, and I kind of engaged our staff to help me dig into it. And the stats that we came up with were really overwhelming. Um, and so as, as you know, it, one of the things that I talk about in the piece is that, you know, women are much less likely. And again, this is, this is not, this doesn't apply to all women, but, but more so uh, than men to use kind of harsh words in the workplace, both because they react to them personally a little bit more strongly and they don't like to use them with others. Hmm. And if a male boss just tends to have a softer approach, no one would ever say, oh, that's, that's because of who he is. It's just, you know, that's his personality type. But when a woman does that, sometimes she's actually told that she needs to, you know, I don't think anyone really uses the phrase man up, but yeah. <laughs> the softer equivalent of that, you know, to act more assertive, to be harder, to be more aggressive, to be tougher on your employees. And I talked to so many CEOs when writing this article, and most of them give me the feedback that they have heard that advice before, and they are not doing it not because they don't know how or they don't know how to yell, but because that's not the kind of workplace they want to build. They are choosing to bring their own cultural norms into the workplace. Hmm. And when a male employee accepts that and comes and sees that softness and misinterprets that as weakness, then you have a problem, and that feeds into you know the secondary problem that I talk about, which is that it's so challenging for male employees to take negative feedback from female bosses, perhaps because of this dynamic, because they've already stepped into this environment that feels softer and more gentle, and you know in some cases more respectful, and so because of that, maybe they are, and again, probably this is subconscious, but maybe they're subconsciously interpreting this as a, you know, as a sort of carte blanche not to live up to the same standards of performance. Yeah. Um, And that's when you run into issues. Well, you mentioned uh, in the article that men, uh, even subordinates, interrupt women as much as three times more often than they interrupt other men. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a subtle data point. I mean, not so subtle, but it's, it's, it's in your face and... And some of that, I guess, is the aggressiveness. You, we, you know, we, 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 and some would say, well, I thought men didn't talk as much, but maybe we do. I mean, the research actually shows we mm-hmm. use about the same amount of words. It's that we're, we might interrupt a lot more um, or be more aggressive in our language. And, and then, like you're saying, we might perceive somebody that doesn't act as strong as weak when they're being, they're, they're being themselves and being strong their way. Absolutely. And, you know, I cite a study in here that was done uh, fairly recently, I believe a year ago, at the University of Milan, and they did, uh, they ran a study on college students, so this is not even, there's no generational explanation for this, and they had them negotiating uh, in a in a sort of mock uh, exercise with a female boss and a male boss, and the men were much more aggressive in negotiating with the female bosses less so with the male bosses. Um, and then the women were kind of maintained a similar level with hmm. both genders. 
And you can extrapolate that out and, and you can see that really that kind of environment um, can often motivate men to just, to just be more aggressive when they're reporting to a woman. And again, not, not aggressive on, in an everyday environment, but more aggressive when they're called out on errors or mistakes or when their opinions are contradicted. Um, and, and we've, you know, I've personally seen that happen. We, you know, had a, a lot of, people in our company are female. We have some great male employees as well, but we had a sort of unbalanced environment in the opposite direction where we had more women. And at one point we introduced, um, we, we were actually doing some interviews and inter- introduced the men to the mix um, who we, they were looking at a sales position. And I was shocked at how often they started to interrupt. And when we had conversations before, they, they were very smooth. And if we interrupted, we would always say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, Caroline, I have one point and then I'll let you finish. And that completely went out the window. And I'm sure they didn't even know they were doing it. I thought that they thought they were just showing that they were excited and assertive and, and really ready to jump in and tackle this position. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? And. So I guess the big key to a lot of this is we just we need to be paying attention. We need to be, and, and learn, I guess, our own style and learn that. Um, I mean, there is research out there. This isn't just you know old wives' tales or whatever you know folklore. Um, but I guess one of the most shocking, not shocking, but I guess enlightening points I read was how we sometimes the paradigm we have of women comes. Um, not from somebody that we see as an equal in our organization, but almost more like my sister mm-hmm. or my date. <laughs> and so it ends up creating a weird relationship where I don't know how to act around you except make you chummy like you're my sister or you know, try to impress you, I guess, like a date. And you know what's really funny? I would have laughed at this if I hadn't had that experience. And... I was talking to, you know, Sue Chen, who I quote extensively in this article, um, is, is absolutely wonderful, and she's a very powerful woman and, and leads her company in, in many exceptional ways. And when I shared with her what I wanted to write about, she was very excited to be quoted. Um, by the way, I'll point out, you, you mentioned kind of this isn't an old wives' tale. There were women I talked to who were nervous about being quoted, because this is you know, at some level, this subject is a little bit precarious for a woman to broach because I think once you start talking about it, particularly if you misstep or talk about it in the right, in the wrong way or too loudly or too aggressively, then you risk building an environment within your company where next time you're hiring, a male employee says, you know, I read your article. Gosh, I wonder what she's going to be like as a boss. And, mm. so, and so there are a lot of women who, you know, don't discuss these issues on a public stage. And so I'm very grateful to Sue, by the way, for, for going out and, and kind of taking the plunge and doing this with me. And so she, she told me anecdote after anecdote where, you know, she said the first time I hired this guy, he raved and said, oh, my gosh, working for a woman is great. This is amazing. Um, and she continued to tell me. And she was like, but then we'd go to a restaurant and he'd always pull out my chair and he'd always refresh my drink and he'd always do all these little things, which in and of themselves are very charming, and I don't think that you would find any woman who would object to them. But packaged along with that is this is this additional attitude of you're my date, right, or you're right. my sister. And that extends, unfortunately, to that situation where she had to sit across the table from him and say, look, you're underperforming. And then suddenly he was riled up because that's not the kind huh? of treatment you want. I pulled your chair out for you. 
Right, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Oh, and wow. So on balance, if that's, if that's the situation, you know, they would say, don't pull my chair out. Don't right. go up to the bar and get me a drink. Don't open my door. Just let's create an environment where we can work together and it works for both of us. Oh, and man, oh, I wish we had more time, Anna, because I've gone on <laughs> trips um, with my speaking business where – I'll be out on in the on the road with a team of people, and some of them are female, and I feel this brotherly need to make sure that they're okay. And yet I sit there and I think that must feel, I guess, supportive, helpful, but condescending and um, problematic at times. And you've opened my eyes. So I appreciate it, oh, Anna. I appreciate that. And look, I, just, I think that you shouldn't squelch any sort of feelings of just general... Concern, courtesy. exactly. Yeah, courtesy and concern. I, I doubt any woman would be upset if you're trying to make sure that they're okay. Yeah, but and, but, and but notice it too. Wouldn't be upset either, yeah. right? If you see a guy stumbling and he's you know either he's tipsy or sick or whatever, right. I doubt that he would push you off and say no, no, don't help me. Right. Um, I think I think the challenge is when that that drips over into other elements of the relationship, yeah. and so that's what you really have to watch for. Great insight, Anna Redmond. Thank you so much, and uh, keep up the great work there at uh, Hippo Reads. Excellent stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Again, go check out the website read.hipporeads.com. Hipporeads.com. Interesting articles there, academic-based as well as uh, but intriguing, gets you thinking. Let's start, to, let's start to at least evaluate how I see others and, um, and, and really treat people with respect, but also don't just jump to conclusions. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. As uh, as this is the month where we celebrate a lot of our wonderful blessings for being born in a country as as great as ours, we, we also want to celebrate American history. And so who better to do that than Caitlin Thomas, who has put together a game for us I on sure American history. Yes. Appreciate the solo by Ben Wazen. Thank you, Ben. And from yes. the helium field. We just celebrated the 4th of, of July. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I got a three day weekend out of it. This is good. But do people understand why the 4th of July is so important? I don't know. Well, I don't know. So that's why we did this. We're going to quiz you, Matt, okay. on how well you know your American history. And I made sure to pick the hardest questions I could find. Okay. I'm going to stump you this time. Stump me. Let's hit it. Okay. Well, How hard could this be? Here's your first one. This one. This is a warm-up question. Yeah. What was the name of the first English settlement that was founded in America in 1607? Ooh, the first English settlement uh, was the settlement right as they got off the boat, which they called Hallelujah, no. We Done Made It, No More Vomiting <laughs> Over the Side of the Ship. <laughs> Jamestown. Ah. That was the easiest one. You're in trouble. Ah. Okay, what year was the Constitution of the United States written? Written or signed? Written. Ooh. Don't look it up on your computer. I'm not either. looking don't it up. 1789. No. 17. Close, though. 17. But see, I'm trying to get the, the date straight. 1785. Seven. Seven. Darn 1787. It. That was close, though. Okay, so here you go. What years were the Civil War fought from, from beginning to end? When did it start? When did it end? 18... 18... 
1865. <laughs> Correct. Is that right? Yeah. Hold on. He knows the answers. No, Ben, you can't answer. This is for Matt. Oh, I can't? Well, Usually, okay. like, I compete with oh, Matt we, because we, I'm so Well, then you're the only one better. that has the bells. So, Matt, the emancipation... 1860 to 65? 1861, end of 60, beginning of 61 to 1865. Okay. The Emancipation Proclamation, Mm -hmm. signed in 1863, did what for slaves in America? Freed them, emancipated them. And who signed it? Uh, Abraham Lincoln. Yay, he did it! Abraham Lincoln done emancipated. He done do it. And how many people signed the Declaration of Independence? I'm going with um, 20... No. 30? No. I'm going... He's Googling answers. I'm not Googling. How could I Google it that fast? I'm going with 42 people. 56. Really? That many? That many. That doesn't look like 56 signatures. So James Madison, right? Yeah. Jaime, they used to call him. Is considered to be the, the, quote, blank of the Constitution. Fill in the blank. The author. Well, I'm looking for another word. The founder, the writer, the... You're close. Father. The father. Oh, okay. The father. Sorry, I just okay. had to you correct you. have two more. Okay. How many amendments does our Constitution have? The Constitution would have 20 amendments. Higher. 26 amendments. Ooh, close. 27. Oh, really? I quit counting at 20. <laughs> After 20, you're like... I don't think like, anybody even knows what, what all is the amendments the, What's say? the 26th amendment, Ben? That's your question. Thou shalt not... Hire a board op <laughs> that can't board or op. This is your last question. What? What time is it? This one you might be able yeah. to get. Yeah. Okay, here we go. How many presidents has America seen? 46. Mm, 44, 45. 44. Oh, I knew it. Well, 43 people have served as president of the United States. This includes Barack Obama, currently serving a second term. Barack Obama is sometimes listed as the 44th president. This is okay. because Grover Cleveland was counted both the 22nd and the 24th time. Okay. There you have it. Great history lesson. That's a lot of history. This is why we celebrate the 4th of July. We love America. We'll take a break. We'll be right back, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the hour number three of the Matt Townsend Show. So glad you joined us. This is Dr. Matt, your coach, your guide on the side. We do what we can on this program to give you the information you need to live uh, life. It's not, uh, you know, we could, everyone can do the news for heaven's sakes. We like to go a little deeper and get you um, stories from heroes and from people that are just struggling with life as you are today. No exception. In fact, one of our past producers, Liz Miller, will be joining us in a few moments with her mother, Janelle, who um, have voluntarily... Um, had gone around, gone about genetic testing, bilateral mastectomies, and countless surgeries to basically prevent the likelihood of cancer in their family. And we will uh, we'll be talking to them about their journey, their lessons learned, and man, true heroes. When you think about it, uh, as we always like to highlight on the show, 
uh, people that are willing to do the hard stuff, and they're doing it. And I think coming on the show today to talk about it also a sign that uh, for all of us that there's good out there. And we can learn um, from these wonderful people. We'll be getting to them in a few moments. Also, we've got a lot of headlines to get through, just a bunch of stuff we still got to find out about. Uh, some news. We'll, if we have time, we'll get into a little bit more about Hillary Clinton. Uh, basically freed. Uh, no problem. She's good. I mean, well, obviously, didn't do a great job protecting the secrets of the State Department. But she's not going to be charged. So... We'll get into a bunch of uh, topics like that. Also, Fried Chicken Day, my friends. Fried Chicken Day. Ah. And a quick quiz before we get to the headlines. Quick quiz. In fact, I wonder if Terry would even know the answer to this crazy question. Terry, um, three choices. Kentucky for chicken. Where was the first deep fried chicken prepared Kentucky Uganda hmm. or Scotland seeing as I prepared the document you're reading from yeah Uganda exactly wrong the answer now see if you can tell Kentucky no oh. listen to the music okay not Uganda not Kentucky Yes. Yes. Third time's the charm. Happy Fried Chicken Day, folks. Prior to the Second World War, fried chicken was uh, very often uh, expensive because it was finger-licking good. That's what I had for dinner last night. Really? Chicken. Nuggets? No. You went the real stuff. Some of the Colonel's special recipe. Oh, man. Nothing says America. Nothing says heart disease. Mm. Like Scottish chicken. I love me some Scottish chicken. We uh, we are celebrating Happy Chicken Day. Happy Scottish Fried Chicken Day. Another angel got a wing. Didn't get his wings. He got a wing. I like le- the leg. The chicken leg's the best Your part. Leg. I like the breast. There's more meat there. Understood. Ben liked the wing. You like the wing. Hey, uh, let's get to the headlines now. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Caitlin Thomas, what's up? Well, Matt, this just in President Barack Obama said today that he will leave behind more troops in Afghanistan than originally planned. Speaking from the White House, Obama said he would draw down troops to 8,400 by the end of his administration from the initial target of 5,500. The current level of troops in Afghanistan is 9,800. A judge sentenced Oscar Pistorius to six years in prison on Wednesday for the murder of his girlfriend, citing mitigating circumstances and delivering less than the prescribed minimum punishment. The athlete known as Blade Runner, a double amputee, had been living under house arrest prior to sentencing, calling Pistorius a, quote, fallen hero who has lost his career and cannot be at peace with what he had done. Judge Masipa told the court a long-term prison term sentence would not serve justice in this matter. Then Masipa delivered her sentence six years in prison, and the sprinter was almost immediately taken away by the authorities of the court. People took to the streets this morning in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to protest the death of Alton Sterling. A black male and father of five, Sterling was shot during an altercation with police um, last night. The shooting is still under investigation. A Navy SEAL trainee drowned after being repeatedly dunked underwater by an instructor, according to a San Diego medical examiner's report that labels the death a homicide. 
The May 6th death of Seaman James Derek Loveless had not been announced by the Navy until after officials were questioned about it by NBC News and the Virgin Pilot um, newspaper. Navy officials portrayed it as a training mishap, but sources told NBC News and the pilot the death was caused by an instructor going too far. The Naval Criminal Investigative Service is conducting an investigation of the matter. And lastly, Matt, Pope Francis met Wednesday with the grieving parents of Bo Solomon, the American college student found dead in a Rome River. The Pope met with Jody and Nick Solomon to offer his deepest sympathies for the death of their son. The Pope's unscheduled private meeting with the Solomons came before Pope Francis held an audience with French pilgrims in a Vatican auditorium. Wow, what a... So there's that. What also, a neat thing, and that's a, that's a big deal. It is a big deal. Also, and Matt, did you know that today, on top of Fried Chicken Day, is also International Kissing Day? Hold your loved ones tight. Give him a kiss today. But hold your chicken even tighter. But hold that chicken even tighter. You're <laughs> disgusting. Because sometimes when they're coming in for a kiss, they just really want to grab your chicken leg. That's – you know what? You don't know my family. <laughs> International Kissing Day. Hmm. I think I prefer Fred Chicken Day. Ah, another chicken got a wing. Anyway, uh, great uh, great news for um, one city. You know, what do you do when you get a, a speeding ticket and you're, you're trying to protest the speeding ticket? Well, as you've seen a million times, you just pay in pennies, right? That's what Texas man Brett Sanders did with NBC DFW to explain his indignation over a $220 uh, speeding ticket – that he recently received while driving near his Frisco home. Sanders was fined for driving nine miles over the limit. Nine. And because cops made such a big deal about uh, his transgression, he decided to make a big deal about paying for it. I just decided to pay as, uh, you know, with pennies. And um, we actually have a video of uh, how to pay a ticket. He, he made a YouTube video about it, by the way. It's already racked up more than 1 million views. Sanders says he, uh, he notes that he was convicted for going 39 miles an hour in a 30 mile per hour, per hour zone, that he's not a big fan of extortion, and that he had to pay the $212 plus a processing fee, um, all because of, you know, they basically had the gun pointed at him to do it. So well, how fast was he going? 39. In a? 30. Two hundred dollar fine, two twelve plus processing fees. Yeah, that's extortion. So instead of just extortion, he took he he paid in pennies, twenty two thousand one cent pieces, hmm. and we have the video of him uh, paying his ticket right here. Back it up, and here they come. Take that. And I'll need you to count it. I want a receipt. I'll be over here. Let me know when you're done. 22,000 pennies. Wow. That seems like extortion. A little bit, a little bit. It just keeps going. He needs to just dump it. He's on the slow dump. Yeah. Let's just take a break. We'll come back to this. See. Huh. Hmm. You see that happen all the time, but they just like pour out, you know, a sock full of pennies. Right. Not a truckload. It's a lot of pennies. 22,000 to be exact. 
Did you make his point, do you think? Or did I don't make... know. I really would. I'd make him – I want a receipt. So what would be the end result of that? They're still charging $200 for 10 miles over. Yeah. But he got – the end result is he had the satisfaction of knowing that he made them work really hard. I think I would just pay the fine and move on. Who cares? You know, pennies are not a legal form of tender, so they did not have to accept the pennies. What do you mean they're not a legal form? Like, so a legal – penny. A legal form of tender is something that you can pay all debts with, public or private. Okay. And it starts with five cents. Why don't they accept pennies? It's, it's worth one U.S. cent. It's just not legal. So people can deny a penny as a form of payment. That person's a jerk. See, this country, I don't know where it's going. You can't even – but you know what? There is one thing. You know, I, I you find a penny hmm. and you pick it up and then all day you'll have good luck. Where'd you read that? Just a fairy told it to me on the street. Really? Wow. My mom told me that that's just factual. Okay. So legal tender or not, definitely a good luck giver. Pennies. According to Matt Townsend's mom. This this story reminded me of you. Did you hear the story about the massive tractor, tractor tire that was stolen from a fitness facility? Because you're a guy that does this crazy workout where you – Jump on a barrel, jump mm-hmm. off a barrel, carry you know, sandbags, yeah. Yeah, do the stuff. hokey pokey, turn yourself around thing. Yeah, yeah, you sure. do that. Climb ropes, yeah. So this one guy went in, snuck in to a fitness facility, and stole a tractor tire. Now you've seen those. I flip them, yeah. You're a tractor tire flipper. Yes. So, are they hard to flip? Not really. For some. Mean? For not, some. Not for me. It ticks my wife off. She's over there putting every ounce of strength, and I just grab it and flip it. Why are we flipping tires? It's a uh, cardio exercise. Okay. It's a core exercise. It helps you stay in a, a safe position as you work your uh, your, um, your core, hamstring, core, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So this one is tied with cables. Except for me, it's more of a forearm workout when I wow when I flip the tire. You know, there's some guy <laughs> from like a from like a tire warehouse thinking these people are idiots. Guys are morons. They could do this as a job. So those. the guy that stole the tire just so happens he's uh, he's walking on a prosthetic leg. Oh wow! Okay, he's back. Who is it? The Bionic Man. Is that what it is? One Yeah, yeah. Goes in. Cuts the cable to the – because they apparently had this tire on lockdown because yeah. they didn't want anyone stealing it. This guy went in. Well, cut it, was, the cable. it was hooked to the restroom key. That's what it is. Oh, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah. That's why I, I can't even use a restroom anymore because I can't move the tire. You have the upper body strength to use And then the he, this guy rolls the tire to his vehicle, loads it, drives away. He's described as, as a 25 to 30-year-old man weighing about 180 pounds, standing 5 feet 11 inches tall. Wow. Which this shouldn't surprise you, just because he has a—he was wearing shorts, by the way, so they could see the leg. Mm. But it shouldn't surprise you. We got a Blade Runner. Yeah, you got Pistorius, a Blade Runner, winning Olympic gold. Well, Why couldn't this guy flip not a gold? But he qualified for the Olympics. Yeah, competed. Well, he's winning Olympic events. He won awards and medals, and yeah. So. And let's just be real because Caitlin said he's the Blade Runner. That was not the original Blade Runner. No. The Blade Runner was a, a movie. No. That, predating oh, that. Oh, wait. Really? The original Blade Runner. Santa? Terry South because oh. he's a knife man. Nobody loves knives more than Terry. What? 
And then you'd run around the house with a knife and your mom would be like, hey, Blade Runner, put that down. No, that's not how it happened. In your little footsie jammies. Not since I was 14. (laughs) Not since I got married. (laughs) That was one of the rules. No footy pajamas. Yeah, You're You're, you're a grown man. I love everything about you, but you're going to have to lose the footy. I'm like, but I like it. They have little traction balls on the bottom so I don't fall down. They give me grip when I'm trying to cut in the kitchen. (laughs) Did you have like a Captain American um, footy pajama? That that obsession didn't come till later. My parents didn't allow that to happen. Really? That and there really wasn't a lot of emphasis on that in the modern childhood cartoon media okay there was underoos though but then they went away early so. yeah underoos that always creeped me out what i don't know just the commercials okay because the kids would be running around tv in their undies well, of course because that's the product is the underoos yeah i don't want to see that <laughs> as a kid it's like okay and then you go down to the store and you get your cardboard envelope full of whatever Right. Costume you get to wear for the day. But then no one can see it because you've got your clothes over it. Well, you, well you'd wear the shirt. No. The, you, right? the shirt was supposed to be an undershirt, but everyone just wore the shirt because it had like the superhero emblem on it. It was awesome. <laughs> it's, it's like a, a good luck charm almost. Well, it's but the problem is you have to take your clothes off for anyone to know. So then everyone became exhibitionists. No. That's, that's why it went off the market. They just needed to sell the shirts. I actually went to preschool in England, Uh-oh. and there, like for gym class, you do everything in your underwear, and so everybody saw my underoos. Hold on, really? Wow. Yeah, that's not real. You probably just did it. <gasps> no, wrong. no, no, but you've seen. Um, did you do gym class in England wrong? Is that what you're saying? You've no, seen chariots of fire did. when they're running. They're running. It looks like in their undies. Yeah, that was yeah. just the style, <laughs> the fashion the style. of the time. <laughs> oh, okay, those weren't their undies. <laughs> there you go. How? Uh, Ben did not go – he did, did not live in England. He did gym class wrong when he was a kid. And he thought it was England. That's what he thought. It was like North Dakota. Yeah. You can call my mother if you want. She will – We're not dragging her into this. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to bother your mother. <sighs> they already call her all the time anyway. Trying to figure yeah. out – Yeah. Can you come down and identify your son? Yeah, I'll be right there. Anywho, we got a great uh, uh, guest coming up. Um, Liz Miller, one of our former uh, producers, is here to talk about a story um, near and dear to her heart. She and her mother have been battling cancer, but in a very proactive way. And we'll, we'll let them explain the process they've gone, they've undergone. And uh, truly, though, be listening. This is a, a powerful story of a mother and a daughter trying to really fight their future. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Just had a major reunion in the studio. Liz Miller back on the scene. If you remember, Liz was one of our producers. Uh, She's been designated as the favorite producer ever. (laughs) Thank you. It's a good title. She, Nobody, I mean, all producers are great. They are. They're incredible, quite honestly. We have amazing ones here. We have amazing ones. Oh, they're spectacular. But Liz set the standard because Liz would just outwork everyone 
<laughs> you see I what would, I did now. Yeah. <laughs> Joining us is Janelle Miller, Liz, and Liz Miller. Janelle's the mom. Right. And but they look like sisters. Is, oh, you're so kind. It's true. I'm sometimes considered the older sister, actually. Really? <laughs> yes. Like the more really. mature one. Yeah, she is the more mature one. And I was going to tell you, my bathrooms have never been clean again since she left. I know. I it's bet. Sad. It's Are you a cleaner? I am, actually. She's fabulous. I like organizing. Do you wanna, have you, can you come to my office for about 20 minutes to yeah. help me yeah, sure. clean some stuff up? <laughs> now, here's the deal. We've asked Liz to come back and bring her mom because they have, I think, an incredible story, and I'll let them pretty much tell it. But I remember being in a meeting with Liz, and Liz told us about the BRCA2 gene, mm-hmm. BRCA gene 2. Not yes, the one. Not the one. Part two. Part the two. Sequel. The never sequel. Never quite as good. <laughs> never, never quite as good. It's plenty good. <laughs> and told us that uh, she's she's going to have to go deal with the bracket gene, and um, I didn't quite know what that meant, but I've since learned. Teach us about your mom, your family, what what the bracket gene is, because there's a lot of people out there that don't know, I'm sure, and what you've done, which to me. Phenomenal, and it's a mother-daughter story that I think needs to be told. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. My, so my mom's more. We approach this differently. I approach it as I don't want to know until I am on the day in the surgery. Yeah. Which was my approach. My mom wanted to know everything. So <laughs> as far as information about the BRCA2 gene, she's going to need to answer that because <laughs> I was like, la, 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 la. Well, what is it? Tell us, Janelle, because it's and how did you find out you had it? Um, I found out because my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she was in the last stages of it before they found it. Mm. Uh, and so I want to put a shout out here for mammograms. Yeah. Get your mammograms. Don't avoid your mammograms because if that had been caught earlier, you know, we'd known. still have the gene, but she'd be here. Right. So, um, I, you know, the only the first time I heard of a cancer gene, and that's kind of a misnomer a little bit because it's not really a gene, yeah. but was with Angelina Jolie. And so I heard about her taking preventative measures, and I thought, she's smart. You know, she's really smart. And my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer, and my dad had battled prostate cancer, but his was really slow, and his life was good, and I didn't think about it as being connected in any way. And as my sister progressed through her treatments, we realized and learned that you can have uh, either the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene in your family or these, these broken proteins that don't prevent your body from getting certain kinds of cancer. And um, ultimately, we were all tested. My sister was tested. She had it. My mom actually died of uh, ovarian cancer. Oh, but wow. didn't, Yeah, she did not have the gene. Oh. And so we naively thought that that meant we yeah. wouldn't have it because we knew that breast cancer was involved in all that. So we thought, woohoo, we're out of the woods. So when my sister was positive, my dad decided to be tested, and he was positive, oh. and we got it through him. So I was obviously I was tested two weeks before my sister died. She died last year on Memorial Day. Um, I found out I had the BRCA2 gene, and that means that all of my kids have a 50% chance of also oh. having it. Yeah, and it, it tends to present. Even the boys. Even, even the, the boys. boys. Well, yeah, because we got yeah. it through dad. Yeah. But it presents really, for some reason, strongly in women. So a lot of times you'll have a family that, you know, one of the boys will have it, but all the women will have it. And in our case, all of the all of the girls had it. Oh man! Yeah, my brothers haven't been tested yet, but um, but we we do. All three of us had it. And so Liz has a younger sister who will also be. T- actually, all my kids will be tested, but she'll be tested soon. So BRCA one, um, which is what Angelina Jolie had, uh, gives you up to and and the numbers vary a little bit, but up to an eighty five percent chance of getting breast cancer. Actually, both of these do. Really. 
Eighty-five yeah. percent up chance. to yeah. so as you get older, it, yeah, the it increases. Yeah. So it's like, the, as I say, the numbers are like between thirty and seventy-five, or between forty and eighty-five percent chance, oh my depending. Heavens. Yeah, and they can't tell you where you are on that spectrum, right? So, and then it's a, up to a sixty percent or sixty-five percent chance of getting uh, ovarian cancer with both of those BRCA yeah. genes. Yeah. and then you have some variations. You have like a slight increase, maybe a four percent increase in getting skin cancer in our case, or pancreatic in our case. Or in Angelina Jolie's case, I think thyroid and something else. I'm not sure what else. Um, so those lesser ones, you just kind of monitor and you watch. The boys, if they have the gene, they start being checked for prostate cancer 10 years earlier. Okay. The girls, you know, at 25, they're like, okay, we want you in here every six months right. to start monitoring. Right. But it's not preventative. Like having the mammograms and the MRIs just tells you if and when the cancer will present. Oh, man. So the only real prevention you can do is to have all the tissue removed. Oh, wow. And that, yeah, that, and, and so when you can have a mastectomy, bilateral mastectomy, and then also a salpingo-oophrectomy where they remove the ovaries and the fallopian tubes, but they worry about that less when you're younger. They wait until right. maybe you've had your kids. Um, that will drop your chances. Having the mastectomy will drop your chances by 95 to 98%. Wow. So, so it's kind of... Yeah, no decisions brainer. Decisions made. <laughs> yeah, for some people. Now, my other sister prefers to monitor it. Yeah, you know that, that works for her. For me, if the solution's in front of me, I'm on it. Just jump on it. <laughs> get on it, it done. Yeah, Liz. What? Is, and then, how did you find out? Um, so I actually I didn't want to take the test. Yeah, I, I was bet. kind of like, wow, I'm you know still yeah. in college. La, 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 I mean, la, 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 right. I don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'd watch my mom go through it, and you know, seeing her. Take this, mind you. Though she had like seven surgeries total, she had a bunch of other surgeries happen at the same time. I had some so, little speed bumps with my. Yeah, oh, no. it was a huge headache. So I had watched that, and I was like, you know, I'm a, I'm a pass. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna pass on this. But I finally, given like the the percentages and everything, decided that okay, I got to rip off this Band-Aid and just figure out whether or not this is something I need to deal with so that I can be a responsible adult for my future family. You yeah. know, I was like, all right, responsibility was kind of what really got me going. Which is why we loved you as an employee. <laughs> my responsibility for my future <laughs> yeah, family you're and so the, the radio responsible. family. She's an oldest child. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you, go. you can tell. But <laughs> we're related. <laughs> um, so I, I got the test um, results back in October, and I was working on a film shoot. And I would considered not working on the film shoot because I thought if I got the test results and they were bad, it would mess me up. So I got them the day I was going into the oh, film shoot. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it didn't. But I was okay. like, I knew this was going to happen. Yeah. So I just remember I was actually on campus here, and I just remember sitting outside against the wall and just kind of slowly sliding down the wall just, <laughs> and sitting uh, in, like, the fetal position, just kind of like, okay, so what does this mean? Yeah. What does this mean for, you know, me having kids? What does am I? Can I have kids? Mm-hmm. I can't. I can't have kids with someone who also has the gene. So whoever I marry, they have to be tested so we know. Oh, wow. And, you know, am I, am I going to adopt? What am I going to do? There's an opportunity to do to have your kids in vitro. So they fertilize the egg and sperm like not in you Yeah. in a little Petri dish. Right. And they pick the one that doesn't have the gene and you can go I mean, from but there. You, have, you but... had to think about all of this. Exactly. And I was like, all right, you know, that one day in the future when yeah. – there's a dude on his knee, and I'm like, well, okay, hang on. Have, we, have you been tested for this gene? Just just yeah. so you know. Just so you know. <laughs> but your conscientiousness probably made it harder, I mean, because you thought about everything. I didn't yeah. have to think about a thing because I didn't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we didn't even know. They weren't doing that kind of testing So this, 24 years I mean, ago. it's a blessing to know mm-hmm. and to be on it, but it also, I guess it comes with a, 
another trial. Yeah, it's definitely a little heavier. You know, I'm watching my friends around me have kids and have their families, and I'm really thrilled for them. Yeah. And it's also mildly depressing. So yeah. I'm like, oh, it's going to be different. I'm never going to be able to breastfeed. I'm never going to be able to, you know, do things oh, yeah. quite the same way. Well, just your whole identity as a woman. I, I remember in an interview you did was you have to kind of reevaluate yeah, what makes a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, oh, you're beautiful. We'll take a break and come back and continue the discussion with Janelle and Liz Miller. Uh, the the BRCA virus, folks. Um, Gene. <laughs> we Gene, don't want to spread another not virus. virus. Sorry. <laughs> Gene. It's so true. It felt like a virus. But it's when you think about it, man, blessed to have it. Um, but big decisions have to be made once you know. We'll continue the discussion and the learning from the Millers. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show in studio. A reunion of sorts. Liz Miller's back with us, one of our producers, just barely. Uh, we just sent her out to pasture. Uh, <laughs> she graduated when? April? Yeah, April. April. Liz was uh, just, she was a great leader for us. And nobody probably got more guests on the show than Liz Miller. I don't, Leanna. No, definitely, I'd say. You think Leanna? I think Leanna. <laughs> Are you sure? I don't know, man. She was she was on top of it. She, Leanna, is on. You all are. You're all on top <laughs> of it. But Liz, to this day, everyone still follows your your methods. Oh, well, we I hand them down. Liz teachers. brought her mom, Janelle, with us, and Janelle and Liz uh, have the BRCA2 virus. No, Gene. Gene. <laughs> we've been not, talking a lot about. We've been virus. talking a lot about Zika lately. <laughs> uh, the gene, the BRCA gene, which um, basically says, okay, high, high, high likelihood of various forms of cancer, mm-hmm. from prostate to breast cancer to ovarian, ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. So then all of a sudden you have to make decisions. Do you want to be proactive and try to prevent some of these with uh, bilateral mastectomies and other things? And which is what you both have chosen to do. Um, how does one make that decision, especially <laughs> Lizzie, at your age? Um, for me, once I knew that I had the gene, it was kind of a no-brainer, just because I wanted to be again responsible for my for my posterity. It actually lined up really nicely because I had graduated. I yeah. could still be on my parents' insurance because it's it's expensive, oh. spendy little. And so yeah. that was helpful. It was just. The stars aligned, and that's what I was supposed to do while everyone was celebrating their graduation. Yeah. I quickly went skydiving and went to Moab, and then I saw that. <laughs> I'm like, she's surgery. got a death wish. <laughs> nope, she's just got the BRCA2 virus. That's it. Not Gene. <laughs> Gene, uh, Gene. I don't know why I keep calling it the virus. Why, Janelle, what are you thinking? Because also to then watch the pain your daughter has to go oh, through. You went through it yourself, but then, and lost a sister. Right. Um, but then and to have dad, to end your dad because of prostate cancer. How do you, how do you how do you walk your daughter through this? Oh gosh. Well, first of all, when I you know I came out of my own surgery and and was all like, okay, I can do this. I can get through this. Yay! Woohoo! I'm past the hard part. And then it hit me about my kids. That's way worse. If oh. I if I could have had this surgery three more times or four more times and made sure nobody else had had to go through it, I would have absolutely done that. Give me like a couple months in between. But yeah. I absolutely yeah. would have done it. Um, 
So it was, it was oh, way distressing, very distressing when I found out Liz had to do it. And um, if Katie does, I'm going to also be distressed. But I also knew that she had seen me do it and I had done it. So I knew what to expect. Mm. And I'd had – I certainly didn't have worst case scenarios in any, by any stretch. But I had a few little speed bumps along the way, had some extra surgeries, developed hematomas and had to have them removed, a few things. But um, – and I blew out my knee, which, by the way, oh, I don't recommend. You did <laughs> while you're on in the top middle of, of all, it all. Of this. Yeah, for fun. And so for wow. fun, it felt lonely and left out. So, so <laughs> more time to think. More time to think. So Just what you needed. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I knew that that you know if I could survive all the all of those major surgeries and then the little complications I had, that Liz could. I know Liz. She was the type of little kid who I never knew she had an ear infection until there was blood on the pillow. So I knew she was going to tough it through the pain. Yeah. I, I wasn't. I mean, I didn't want her to go through it, but I wasn't terrified for that. Um, it was more the emotional side of it that that being that young, yeah. having not had babies. I mean, I'd had babies. I'd done some big things with pain, and you know, so I was a little worried about that. But but you know, you have to wrap your brain around a lot when you have a child. Right. She's not done that kind of thing, so I was concerned about her psyche. Yeah. Um, but you know, she and it 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 got to her. You know, she had to think about it, and I watched her think about it and wonder if she was still a girl. And and you realize, of course, you are. You right. know, this is external. Um, but I've I've been filled with awe as I've watched her, which will not surprise you because you've worked with her. But yeah. she she toughed it out physically, and then emotionally, you know, she she's a spiritual being, and so she went there and she would talk to me when she had questions. Yeah. Uh, she did not like me to firehose her with information, so she would tell me when <laughs> I was firehosing her. That's enough, mom. <laughs> you know. So I really I, I've had tremendous admiration as I've watched her, and I feel like it was a great. I do feel like it was a great advantage to, yeah. to have someone so close to home go through it. So she really didn't need all that information. For my part, uh, a, a woman reached out to me that I didn't know who was my little angel going through it, who I could call, and oh, I knew wow. how helpful that was. Yeah. So I, I feel like we've actually been really blessed through yeah. this whole process, and Liz has done really well. In a way, it's you almost seem because you would almost feel like you'd lost, you'd lose your femininity, but because of a double mastectomy. But to me, you're more. You're you're more female. You're. I mean, this was a mm-hmm. pure act of love for your children and your future generations. It is. This is this is pure motherly. It is. It's and a big deal, Liz. <laughs> it is. And let's be honest, science and technology are so amazing that I mean, years ago there wasn't reconstruction. Yeah. Technology and and there is now. So right. we go through this. We can come out if we if you choose, still looking like a woman. Yeah. So that aspect of it, it plays with your head the whole time you're oh, being sure, reconstructed. Yeah. But um, that aspect of it kind of takes care of itself. But yeah, you you get that feeling that okay, I'm doing something to help my kids. <laughs> Knowledge is everything. Well, you look know? how yeah. you went right there, Liz. You went right to the in vitro or whatever. <laughs> or, yeah. uh, I mean, you She's went right to how it. I'm going mm-hmm. to bring children into the world yeah it's i don't know it's that's been one of the huge blessings of this is just being able to transcend kind of you know all my my own like insecurities about being a woman or what that means or what that looks like or being a mother being capable and kind of having this opportunity to to make a sacrifice and to do something that's really brought a whole lot of empathy into my life like right. watching <laughs> watching action movies when something happens to someone I'm like oh ow no that really hurts guys I've, yeah that could hurt <laughs> pain is pain <laughs> that could hurt pain is real <laughs> I don't know it's just it's created that huge just emotion it's opened up a whole lot of emotion which actually has been really precious since things kind of can get desensitizing yeah are you you need to use that for your for acting because <laughs> we found out the last month that she's an incredible actress oh she's really good 
No, she's she really never good. let that shot light shine here. Yeah, but it was have. all an act the whole time. It was all the an act. <laughs> so now you need to use this more on stage. What would you say? Um, so if somebody's out there and they're putting two and two together and they have the break of gene, um, what what would you recommend they do? Like step by step, where should they go? Who should they talk to? Where would you start with that, Liz? Um, well, so if you, if you do think about it, the first step, like medically, is to go and talk to um, your geneticist, right? Is that your, well, is? genetic it's counselor. Your, you could talk to your OBGYN yeah. about it first if you want. Yeah. But, like, but genetic counselor your, would be good. Talk to your family, to your friends. Talk it out. I mean, everyone does it differently. For me and my mom, we're, we're the kinds who just, like, rip off the Band-Aid, get it done, all right, let's move on with our lives. But if that's not you, that my aunt, she prefers just to take it just kind of one it, day at a time. check it. And that's okay. It's okay to feel about it however you feel about right. it because it's a weird wash of emotions where, you know, you're going along fine and then all of a sudden it'll hit you and you're just, oh, like man, anything big, it hits you in waves. The, yeah. the, the actual steps, though, that you want to go through is, is the first thing. I mean, I would say talk to your OBGYN just to kind of get a, an understanding yeah. of it. But then you want to talk to your insurance and make sure that they cover the testing. And my insurance required that we talk with a genetic counselor. And I think probably anybody could just set that appointment and go. Um, and so there's usually one attached to various hospitals. And they, what they have you do is they have you bring in your family's history. So talk to people, as Liz was saying, talk to them and find out who's had cancer and what kind of cancer. The first time I tried to get tested, my insurance rejected my request. My sister hadn't been tested yet. Uh-huh. And I, I didn't know that that the guys were included in this, so I didn't yeah. have a complete history. Once I did, and I realized all the brothers that my dad had who, had who had had prostate cancer, and there was a grandmother, and I had a cousin who'd had breast cancer, then it was like my insurance was like, yeah, get the test. Interesting. So they'll, if, if that's the case, if they determine you, that you need it, a lot of insurances will help cover the cost. Otherwise, you'll pay for it. Um, and I can't remember how much exactly it is, so you can find out. And then they send that in Utah. They send it to Myriad, your blood sample. And it's either a blood sample or a swab. You can okay. do either one. They'll send that to Myriad. That's the company. And uh, I think there are some others now. But and between two and four weeks, you get the results. I got mine back, I think, in a week. Oh, are you terrified when you're waiting? <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't, <laughs> no, you I try not to on your personality. You eat a lot of ice cream. Yeah. yeah. Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> Well, you did it though. Yeah. I mean, and again, as an outsider, I'm I'm in awe. That's a big deal. And to yeah. do it as a family, though, it does seem powerful. Yeah. It helps. It's because it's your gene. This is your pool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I will say that um, as a plug for getting the test. I mean, okay. So, a genetic testing is booming, yeah. and who knows what they're going to be able to do in the future. So, when my daughter Katie, if she has it, I mean, I, by the time she needs to do something about it, I don't even know what where the technology will be. Yeah. Um, Liz's surgeries. My final surgery was in December. Hers, her first one was in May, and they had already advanced in uh, technology enough that she didn't have to go through some of the things I went through, and her recovery went way, way faster. Oh, man, awesome. So the thing that I would put out there is technology is there. Doctors are there. They're on board. Insurance is getting there. If you even suspect and wonder, go get tested. Yeah. You know, it is worth it because at this point, what I was told, and I don't know if this number is exact, is that genetic – um, cancer only accounts for like 10 to 12% of all the cancers. Hmm. So if you have the gene, you at least know yeah. and can do something. Yeah, huge. Liz, what's next? 
Next is, I need school. a job. You know what? <laughs> and we, graduate school. I know people. And then oh, really? you're looking to get into graduate school. Yeah, graduate Studying school. what? Positive psychology and screenwriting. Oh, what a combination. We wish she had goals. We really do. Or media psychology. Ah, a couple She's things. She's so driven. <laughs> so driven. Well, we appreciate you. Liz, Janelle, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks for having and us. And thanks for being such awesome role models. Uh, BRCA2 gene. The BRCA gene, folks. Not to be messed around with. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. So show me family All the blood that I will bleed I don't know where I belong I don't know where I went wrong Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Hey, we are going to throw it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jason Shepard, Spencer Linton and Jason Shepard, that are in uh, holding down the fort today. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Hello. How are you both? We are fantastic. Out of curiosity, how do you pick your song selection each day when you toss down to us? Uh, the way we pick those, um, we choose the least, uh, the, the person in the organization that knows the, the least about music, and then he spends all afternoon the day before looking for it. I have provided some quality music. It's to actually the show. Ben, and Ben always thinks of you too, and then he tries to get a good song that you might want to sing to. Here's what I want to know. When Matt Townsend is by himself, yeah. looking to just enjoy some music, some tunes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what are you playing? Well, usually I'm I'm playing um what's it called? Codaline. Okay. Uh are you guys familiar with Codaline? Uh I stopped paying attention uh, as soon as you started talking about your music selections. <laughs> <laughs> I like I, I don't like, know what you're talking about. I like so. <laughs> I like Codaline. I really do. I like I like uh what's her name? Nia? Is that her is, what's her name? Uh Nia? Yeah. Um, yeah. Is it no, Sia. C S I A. Sia. Sia. I like her. She's great. <laughs> and I like <laughs> Nia. I'm like I can think of a Neo. I, I, I never, I never, I never talk about their names because no one ever asks except you guys. That was nice of you. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um, I, I also, I love um, um, just to shoot straight with you. I love the redheaded guy. Rick who's Astley? the Who's the redheaded music maker? From England, Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran. Love you went him. Ed Sheeran. I went Rick Astley. You went, yeah, isn't that weird? <laughs> you went Get with the times, boys. You. Well, I was trying to go with Matt's times. If, if you had to choose one musical artist each that that would play at your funeral, oh, why a funeral? Well, because you mean our life celebration. Yes. Oh, okay. Life yes. Celebration. That that totally would that yeah. That would be the music band for your life celebration. <clears throat> what what band would you choose, or what group? What person? One. You get one. Ooh, that is Man. tough. I know, and it could be it could be an oldie. It could be somebody you know. It could be somebody from the old uh, school. Here, you know what? Here it is. I want Peter Cetera. Really? <laughs> yeah, I want Peter Cetera. Why? Yeah. I love Chicago with Peter Cetera. Uh. And the fact that, come on, the the man had one of the biggest hits of all time with uh, The Glory of Love from Karate Kid 2. He had like 25 
great. But hits. that's that's like one of the greatest. Is that the one you? That's that's the closing song for your life celebration. I remember coming out of the theater after watching Karate Kid two, and somebody like accidentally bumped into me, and I immediately wanted to fight. <laughs> Because you were like so empowered, like Daniel Larusso, like he he pumped me up. Yeah, no totally. <laughs> sweep the leg. <laughs> Did you sweep the guy's leg right then? No, no, no. The guy I was with said, "Hey, settle down." Did he have like a dragon on <laughs> his know, shirt? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That that's that's really good, Jason Spence. Who would you choose for your Coldplay? Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would too. I like Coldplay, but. I'm kind of liking this Coda line. You got to go listen to Coda line. Coda line. You you've heard a lot of their songs. You just don't know it. <laughs> I just keep thinking of the city Coeur d'Alene in Idaho. No Coeur d'Alene. No, but you got to play. You got to play a Coda line song that somebody knows. Ben, they've they've got a lot. I promise. You, look them up. You're Wait. not a fan if you don't know their songs, Matt. No, I've got them. It's number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten <laughs> on my list under Coda line. <laughs> I don't have time to worry about the names of songs. I've got, I've got things to talk about. Hey, by the way, did you guys know um, today is Fried Chicken Day? No, but that sounds delicious right now. I love now. fried chicken. I'll give you one quiz, then you've got to tell me what's on your show. Here's the quiz. Where was fried chicken first served? Was it Kentucky, Uganda, or Scotland? Scotland. Kentucky. Yep, it was Scotland. Kentucky... Mm-hmm. Uh, Kentucky stole it from a Scottish man wearing a kilt. Yeah. And by the way, when I go get my chicken now, I love it when they're wearing a kilt. (laughs) Did you know that Colonel Sanders first wore a white kilt? Yes. And I want to go back to So I Think I Married an Axe Murderer again right now. (laughs) Do you? He puts an addictive chemical in his chicken that makes you crave it fortnightly. Fortnightly. <laughs> you, got, you got Fortnightly in there. That's great. Okay. We, we, we have, we have a, with his wee beady eyes. eyes. Oh, you're going to eat my chicken. <laughs> the smug look on his face. Great Get in movie. Me belly. Great movie. Hey, um, okay. That's, we've now captured all that sound that will be part of the great. We're, we're, we're putting together a, a 12 CD s- series. A best of? A best of. Just nonsense. It's fantastic. What's on your show today, gentlemen? More nonsense. Excellent. Uh, BYU cracks the Forbes top 100 yet again, Matt. What? How? You got to watch the show to find out. You got to watch the show. That was a good tease. Okay. Okay. Secondly, it's our sequel of the top five and five. Yesterday, we dedicated five years of BYU football independence to come up with our top five wins. And Jason presented the idea today. What about in the post-Jimmer era? Five mm. years since Jimmer Fredette moved on. What are the five best BYU basketball wins in that same time span? Wow. We like lists right now. It's you July. Guys, Let's you're big into man. lists. Let's celebrate. You're talking to the guy that can't even name his favorite songs. <laughs> and you want me to list the five best wins. Just tell me one. I can't. Can you tell me one? Yeah. Oh, no. He, they lost. Uh... I was going to say when Della Vadova hit that dumb shot. Uh, that would be one of the greatest losses. Yeah, the biggest the gut punches. Losses. Yeah, by the way, Della Vadova just won a championship. I'll tell you this much. Yeah, and just signed like a $36 million contract. Are you kidding me? No. Okay. Go Milwaukee. <laughs> I'll tell you this much. The night Matthew Vidal- uh, Della Vadova had his jersey retired in Moraga at St. Mary's, BYU was on the road. Mm. And the 
Cougars did something special that night. That may may be in my list. <gasps> Kentucky Fried Chicken. Mention. It was Lisa chicken. Honorable mention. Okay. Okay, I got to let you go. That's a great show, guys. You're locked and loaded, and Peter, Peter Cetera and Coldplay are ready. Ready, ready to roll. They're man. ready to play at your live Matthews celebrations. Matthews of the New Orleans Saints, Shaq Walker uh, of track and field, just had a world record. They're on the show as well. Okay, that means everybody, when we're done in three and a half minutes, four minutes, stick around. Greatest show on earth. You're Up my next. inspiration. You're, you're well the meaning done, in my life. Spencer. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Knock them dead. Thanks. I can hardly wait for your life celebration. Thanks, guys. That's going to be a good – those are good choices. I mean, Peter Cetera, that's – I mean, he's timeless. It even says that on his website, timeless. Peter Cetera. Okay, we got to get to two stories. Uh, one, by the way, if you're, if you're somebody that, you know, the traditional sports never really caught on for you, there, there might be a sport that you need to get into in Hungary. It's called grave digging. And uh, dozens of grave diggers gathered in Hungary for the nation's first ever national grave digging competition to promote the occupation. Participants competed in 18 two-person teams to dig graves two feet by seven feet wide or seven inches wide, uh, six feet deep, six inches long. And uh, what had to happen is they, they had to dig those things with shovels, rakes, axes, pickaxes. You could pick your tool, basically. And we happen to just have some audio. Listen to this. We like to show video on the show. You got to listen to this video of this guy digging. This this was the runner up, but just listen to his pace. He's working it, digging, and here comes the leader, um, getting into his rig here. Up, oh, this guy actually took the tournament. That doesn't quite seem fair. Oh boy, yeah. I don't see how that's a competition. Okay, that doesn't seem quite right. Let's get out of that. That. So one of them just brings a backhoe. Okay. He did like three graves in a minute. But he did a great job. Yeah. It was it's hard to get a backhoe. Nah, it's precision. Hard. Hey, we always like to talk about the hero of the day as well. Paula Andrews and Jeff Myers from Everett, Washington. They are the heroes of the day. Paula Andrews and her boyfriend Jeff were coming home from a night of shopping to Andrew Andrews Everett apart Andrew Everett's apartment, but something was off. They could hear noises coming from uh, inside the trash compactor that sounded almost like a little kitten or a toy. But Andrews couldn't shake the feeling that there was more to the situation than she could see. It sounded like a crying baby. Andrews called the police, and while they waited around for officers to arrive, she climbed inside the compactor and started to look for the source of the noise. The closer Andrews got, the louder the crying got. At this point, she could clearly tell it wasn't a toy. Andrews kept digging and digging, and there buried in the garbage was a baby boy. The boy was still covered in blood and had the umbilical cord attached. Andrews said that she fell to her knees and started crying, calling that day the most emotional moment of her life. Andrews said she would love to see the baby boy again, though she doesn't know if that would be possible. Police don't know yet who left the baby in the trash compactor. In Washington, there are safe havens to drop off babies with no questions asked, like emergency rooms or fire stations. It turns out there was a fire station located less than a half a mile from where the baby was found. Andrews is just happy that the boy is alive and healthy. She is the hero of the day, as is her boyfriend Jeff Myers. Folks, there's signs, there's clues out there for good opportunities for all of us. Let's pay attention to those signs. Let's pay attention to the people in our lives. 
Let's just learn to love and be stronger and better with each other. And if we do that, guess what? Our life gets better along the way. That's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more information, more solutions and ideas to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll talk again tomorrow. Until then, make it a great one.